Hello and welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistocles Alexis. Today, this is our second episode, we are going to be taking a look at the life and work of an old Hollywood director named George Roy Hill. This is our uh, this is our second episode. Thank you for tuning in, all three of you. Uh, before we get into the life and work of the George Roy Hill, uh, just a bit of housekeeping and formalities and such to get out of the way. So we are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts as well. You can find us on either of those platforms. Just look up Close Set with T Alexis, and uh, you will find us. You can also follow us on Instagram at Close Set podcast that's closed set podcast i have the link to the apple podcasts uh, platform in there and uh, that's where i'll be putting up updates for new episodes and uh, literature and documentaries related to uh, the directors we're going to be covering source materials and such and if you would like to get in touch with us uh, dms on the instagram are always welcome and you can also reach us by email at closed set pod at gmail.com that's closed set pod at gmail.com if you have any questions comments feedback constructive criticism if there is a director who worked primarily between the 30s and 80s uh, from anywhere in the world that you would like to see covered on the show please feel free write us and with that said let us boogie so george roy hill directed uh, several classics among them butch cassidy and the sundance kid the Sting, both of those movies starred Paul Newman and Robert Redford. He also directed Slapshot, a sports comedy classic, a thoroughly modern Millie, a musical with the great Julie Andrews, and The World According to Garp, which was uh, an adaptation of John Irving's novel. And uh, it's been interesting preparing for George Roy Hill and trying to piece him together because, for one thing, he wore very many, he wore many, many different hats. Uh, he served in two wars went to Yale, was an aviation buff, a history buff, uh, an excellent piano player from, uh, from what I've been able to, uh, to cobble together. He was, uh, he was an actor in his youth, a producer, director, of course. He worked as a reporter briefly, a man who lived, it seems, uh, several different lives. Um, and uh, also somebody who wasn't very accessible. He didn't give very many interviews. So it's been, it's been a bit of a, it's been a sort of a welcome challenge just trying to, trying to, prepare for him and, and piece together his life and his work just because a lot of the information isn't coming from the horse's mouth. It's all sort of, you know, uh, secondhand accounts and uh, legend and just sort of pulling a lot of old from old newspaper articles and the interviews that he did give. So yeah, he is a he is a bit of a a bit of an enigma, or was a bit of an enigma, I should say. And it's interesting looking at his work too, because he directed about a dozen films and at first glance, his body of work looks uh, kind of schizophrenic almost. It's a little all over the place. Like his first couple of films were, were uh, adaptations of plays and he did a historical epic and then a musical and then a Western and a crime caper and the uh, sports comedy. Uh, you know, we direct, he directed Slapshot, like we said before. He is literally all over the place. He covers pretty much the entire spectrum uh, as far as genres are concerned. So it's been interesting just 
looking back at his work and uh, trying to see if there's any thread, any pattern, any sort of recurring uh, themes, if you will, in the work of George Roy Hill. And if there's any one conclusion I can draw, it's that I think uh, he was a bit of a romantic. There's a nostalgia to a lot of his movies. A lot of them are period pieces. They take place in, uh, in how can I say this, in bygone eras, if you will. And that's not altogether surprising, especially just reading up on him and knowing that he was a history buff. It's actually, uh, it's actually not at all surprising. It makes total sense, actually, that he would, he would spend a lot of his work sort of looking into the past and celebrating it in his way. Now, with that said, let us start. So George Roy Hill was born December of 1921, born in Minneapolis to well-to-do parents. His, uh, his parents actually ran a newspaper which at the time was called the Minneapolis Tribune. It is now known as the Star Tribune, and it is the largest newspaper in Minnesota, I believe. So it came from a very well-off family. Grew up in Minneapolis, went to prep school, was an aviation buff from a very young age. Apparently he liked to visit the airport as a youth a lot. Uh, started flying when he was very young and obtained his pilot's license when he was still a teenager. Uh, so he studied music at Yale. He graduated in 1943. He was in a frat while he was there. And he was also a member of the Scroll and Key Secret Society. And after graduation, he ended up serving in World War II, and his uh, passion for aviation and his pilot's license actually... Uh, I mean, I imagine that played, that played a role in, uh, in his duties during the war, because he, uh, he served in World War II in the South Pacific as a transport pilot for the Marines. And uh, after the war, he came back to America, briefly worked as a, as a reporter in Texas, down south. That didn't last very long because uh, he eventually took advantage of the GI Bill to go study at Trinity College in Dublin in Ireland. Now, the GI Bill, for those who might not be aware, was, uh, was an initiative that, uh, that gave servicemen and women grants to go study in higher education, and so Hill took advantage of that when he became a civilian again, and uh, he went across the pond to Ireland, studied music and theater at Trinity College, which is a very presti prestigious university in Dublin. I've been to Dublin myself, and it's a, it's a beautiful city. And so it was in Dublin, in Ireland, that he got involved in the theater. He auditioned for Cyril Cusack's theater company. Uh, Cyril Cusack was a legendary and very well-respected Irish actor. And uh, he debuted in his company in 1948 as an actor with a, a small part in George Bernard Shaw's play, Devil's Disciple. And uh, that was in Dublin. And he, uh, he directed his first play called Biography shortly thereafter. He soon returned to the States. I don't have an exact year on this, but it had to be in the late 40s or sort of turn of the decade, maybe 1950. And uh, when he came back to the United States, he supported himself in a variety of different ways. He, um, he continued to work in the theater. He, was, uh, he worked on Off-Broadway in some Off-Broadway productions. He toured with a, uh, a Shakespeare rep company, and that was where he met Louisa Horton, who was an actress and uh, became his wife. In 1951, they were married, and I believe they were married for about 20 years. And uh, <laughs> it was during this time, uh, in the early 50s, I believe, uh, Hill also appeared in an anti-communist docudrama. And uh, he also uh, got work in a radio soap opera. So, uh, yeah. Again, a man who wore a variety of different hats. And so the, uh, with the early 50s comes the Korean War. And he is called to service again. Uh, this time he was stationed in the United States and North Carolina at the Marine Corps Jet Flight Training Center. He was training, uh, 
He was training marine pilots, essentially. And his experience there actually planted the seed for a piece of work he did on live television shortly after called My Brother's Keeper. Now, after serving in, uh, in, during the Korean War, I think his, his service lasted about 18 months, uh, after returning to civilian life yet again, uh, that was when Hale began working in television properly. And keep in mind, the 50s was when uh, television emerged. It was still a very much a brand new thing, and the 50s are often anointed the sort of golden age of television. And it was during that time that Hill got involved in it. And at the time, uh, there were many programs who basically staged live teleplays. And so he did a lot of work for Craft Television Theater and later for Playhouse 90. He worked as an actor, he worked as a writer and a producer. And uh, the episode that was based on his experience um, during the Korean War was called My Brother's Keeper. He did this for Craft Television Theater in 1953. He uh, wrote and starred in it. And uh, he moved into directing as well, uh, mostly in the mid to late 50s. From that point on, he uh, worked primarily as a director. He w really wasn't doing much acting work anymore. He directed uh, a variety of successful television plays, one of which was Judgment at Nuremberg. And arguably his most successful um, undertaking in television was a live teleplay called A Night to Remember. This was for Kraft Television Theater on NBC. And uh, it aired in 1956, and like like I said, this is live television, which is a pretty a pretty daunting undertaking, especially given how, given what went into this production for a night to remember. It's it basically so the it was based on a book by Walter Lord, and it basically follows the uh, the sinking of the Titanic, and it follows passengers both in the first class passengers and the working poor who were sort of stuck below the decks and people who work on the ship and the crew and the captain and the owner of the shipping line and you know and it basically follows all of them uh as the uh titanic hits an iceberg and uh and begins sinking on a day in april she departed on a voyage across the north atlantic her capacity was three thousand people but since she was considered unsinkable she carried lifeboats for only a fraction of that number Four days later, on a cold April night, she raced across the North Atlantic, heedless of iceberg warnings, struck an iceberg, and went down, carrying the rich and complacent aboard her to the bottom. And this was a very elaborate production for Hill, one of many. This is going to be a recurring theme in his, in his work. He, uh, he put on a lot of intricate and elaborate and sort of uh, expansive productions. Just for this one hour of live television alone, 31 sets were built in the studio. Six cameras were used, and I think they had a couple backups as well, and 107 actors uh, acted in this, in this live teleplay. And uh, it was a huge success. It attracted 28 million viewers. It actually increased the sales on Walter Lord's book, the book on which this, this teleplay was based. And uh, another really cool thing they did as far as their production was, ambitious as it was, uh, a lot of the studio sets, of course, were had to be built in tanks because, of course, it, you're, it's covering the sinking of this massive ship. Water is, of course, infil infiltrating. And so to sort of stage the, the flooding, uh, a lot of these sets were built in tanks and, uh, and filled with a couple of feet of water. These sort of catwalks were built off camera for the actors to walk in and out of the scene. It was some really clever and ingenious stuff, and uh, it's, a, it's a really impressive production. And uh, it's on YouTube if you'd like to see it. And uh, it was a huge success. Like I said, 28 million viewers. It got nominated for five Emmys. 
Hill was nominated for Best Director. He and John Whedon were nominated for Best Teleplay Writing. John Whedon is actually Joss Whedon's grandfather. Fun fact. And uh, got nominated for Best Art Direction as well. And it won the Primetime Emmy for Best Live Camera Work. And rightfully so, I think. it was. Like I said, it was a really huge undertaking. And it's, it, was, it was really cleverly done. So, in 1957, after working in television for a few years, Hill goes back to the theater and uh, ended up manning several very successful uh, productions on Broadway, one of which was called Look Homeward Angel, which was based on the Thomas Wolfe novel. It ran for 564 performances, got some Tony nominations, and it had a fantastic cast. Hugh Griffith, who was in Lawrence of Arabia and Tom Jones, Anthony Perkins, who was uh, Norman Bates in Psycho, Joe Van Fleet, who won an Oscar for a movie called East of Eden in 1955, and Arthur Hill, who was a Canadian actor, and he's going to come up again later, so remember that name. So he had a lot of success with Look Homeward Angel. Uh, did a few other plays as well. Uh, probably the most important of which was called Period of Adjustment. This production came was staged in 1960. This was a Tennessee Williams play. And uh, it was a departure for Tennessee Williams himself because it was a rare comedy for him, even though Williams dubbed it a serious comedy. You know, it was uh, much more, I suppose lighthearted than works like sort of The Glass Menagerie and The Fugitive Kind and Cat in a Hot Tin Roof. And so Hill directed the Broadway production of Period of Adjustment. Um, it had a good run, and uh, it was this his involvement in this production that led him to Hollywood, because the first movie he ended up directing was the film adaptation of Period of Adjustment, which came out in 1962. Now, this was Hill's first film, and uh, this is a bit of a late start for him as a film director. He was 40 when this film was shot, and it came out in 1962, so basically what Period of Adjustment covers is Jim Hutton, who's Timothy Hutton's father, and Jane Fonda, the great Jane Fonda, they play newlyweds. Almost immediately after they tie the knot, they start, you know, they start having problems in, in their marriage, and they take a trip to visit a war buddy of Jim Hutton's, who was played by Anthony Franchosa. And his character is having some problems in his own marriage. Anthony Franchosa's character is married to Lois Nettleton. Now, the four of them are the main cast. Anthony Franchosa, by this time, had had a lot of success in the theater and had been nominated for an Oscar for A Hat Full of Rain. Jane Fonda was just 25 years old, I believe, when this came out. And um, some other good, very good character actors show up in this. John MacGyver, who is in The Manchurian Candidate and Midnight Cowboy, plays O'Daniel. Uh, Mabel Albertson uh, plays his wife, and Jack Albertson, who is Mabel's brother and an Oscar winner, uh, he shows up in a brief role as uh, the desk sergeant at the police station. In any case, so it uh, the, the the film essentially covers these two couples and the problems each of them are having in their marriage. Jim Hutton's character, like I said, is a war veteran, and he's dealing with some PTSD, and of course that's putting a strain on his marriage with Jane Fonda's character. And on the other side of that, you have the couple of Anthony Franchosa and Lois Nettleton's characters. They have a son together. Anthony Franchosa's character, like Jim Hutton's, is a war veteran. And he has married Lois Nettleton's character for her money. She comes from a well-to-do family, and of course he takes a job working for her father, and he feels inadequate. And so the film essentially follows problems of these two couples sort of coming to a boil and you know, how they sort of sort through it and try to come out on the other side of it. Now, this was... This was the first of two plays that Hill adapted for the screen. And um, it's probably worth pointing out at this from now that uh, a lot of his work 
especially his work in the 60s, was uh, a little bit inconsistent. His body of work is very hit or miss, which is common of pretty much every director. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying this to put him down, but uh, it sort of took him a few pictures to, uh, I don't know, to find his groove, if you will, for lack of a better phrase. With that said, period of adjustment really isn't, it's, uh, it's not that great. I mean, there are a couple things I like about it. I, I, the, the central cast is great. I love Anthony Franchos and Jane Fonda, and uh, the both of them are very good in this. And there are a couple of really nice sort of long single shot takes, which I always love because I, I, I find them especially intimate. And there are a couple of really nice ones in this. That said, I don't know, it all just feels just sort of little, a little too lighthearted and stripped down and cutesy. I mean, you have, granted, Tennessee Williams wrote this as a comedy, uh, and it was adapted by um, by a woman named Isabel Leonard. She got nominated for, uh, for a couple films for writing, uh, one of which was Love Me or Leave Me, and the other was uh, The Sundowners. But in any case, I guess her adaptation is, like I said, it's all very, it's almost kind of sitcom-ish and a little too lighthearted. And honestly, it's really not that funny. Hey, didn't you have a kid of some kind? Mm-hmm. The presence under the tree might give you a clue, yes. George. She's already made him a sissy. Oh, man, that'd do it every time. Mm-hmm. She'll be back tomorrow at the latest. <clears throat> well, let him. I won't be here. Well, fine, and come on along with us. We're free as a braid, right, little bit? Say, a little bit of crazy. I'm that you're asking my opinion, George, which is to not interfere in something about which you know nothing about. Catch the first plane. Please go out into the car and get my little blue zipper back. George, will you please get my little blue zipper back? Please. You know what I had in mind? George. Hong Kong. Miss Lotus Blossom in the pavilion mm, yeah. of joy. <laughs> well, I never had it so good, boy, at least not since. You know what I mean? George! Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'll get it myself! Huh? I'll go out and get it myself! Boy, you and me got a lot to talk over. And there's potential there for, for, for black humor, because, I mean... You have one guy, one war veteran is dealing with PTSD and is feeling sort of, uh, sort of impotent. And you have Anthony Franchosa's character on the other side of that, who is, who feels totally inadequate. He, he sort of resents himself for, for marrying his wife for his money, even though he, for her money, even though he has grown to love her. And, uh, he hates the sort of bind that he's put himself in, that he's under the thumb of his father-in-law and so on and so forth. But yeah, it's uh, th this one's a letdown. I had high hopes for it because I like the cast, and it's funny too. Lois Nettleton, they she they they kind of try to play her off as like the sort of homely girl of the bunch, even though in re in reality, I looked this up. I was I was I was kind of tickled to find this out after the fact. She was actually a beauty queen. She was a beauty queen in Chicago, and she was a semi finalist for the uh, the Miss America pageant in nineteen forty eight, and she was actually a naturally very 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 pretty lady. But they they try to pass her off as like the the sort of you know the frumpy ugly duckling if you will, um, which is ridiculous. And I got nominated for an Oscar for best uh, black and white art direction. Jane Fonda got nominated for a Golden Globe for best actress in a comedy. Her career took off shortly after this. Uh, but like I said, it's a, a bit of a disappointment given the uh, the talent that was assembled. This brings us to uh, George Roy Hill's second film. It's called Toys in the Attic. This came out in 1963. It was a quick turnaround. And like Period of Adjustment, this was an adaptation of a play. This one by Lillian Hellman, who uh, wrote Watch on the Rhine and The Little Foxes. And This was also on Broadway. 
This was in 1960. The original Broadway production was directed by Arthur Penn, who directed Bonnie and Clyde, and starred Jason Robards and Maureen Stapleton, two fantastic actors, and both of them Oscar winners. And it ran for over 400 performances. Robards and Stapleton both got nominated for Tonys. This film, before we get into it, is it's about a mischievous guy, played by Dean Martin, who is newly married and he goes back to his home in New Orleans to sort of reunite with his sisters, his two older spinster sisters, who still live in their old family home. He goes back there, kind of sort of to reunite with them, but really he's there to sort of carry out, he's there to carry out a scheme with an old flame of his. And the secrecy of it kind of puts a strain on his marriage. And most importantly, the relationships between he and his sisters are explored in the relationship between the two sisters themselves. And it's really, uh, it's about family dynamics. It's about codependency. There's a power struggle between both the sisters. So the cast of this, this film is actually pretty interesting. It's, <laughs> like I said, Dean Martin's in the lead role. He plays this sort of scoundrel that's, uh, that's always up to something. And uh, Yvette Mimure plays his, uh, his young bride. And most importantly, Dean Martin's two sisters are played by the great Geraldine Page. And the great Wendy Hiller. I especially love Wendy Hiller. She was uh, she won an Oscar for Separate Tables in 1958. She was in Murder on the Orient Express. She was in The Elephant Man later in her career. Uh, just a fantastic English actress who was incapable of giving a bad performance. And Geraldine Page, another fantastic actress. She was from the States. Uh, won an Oscar in 1985 for A Trip to Bountiful. And the two of them are fantastic in this. It, and like Period of Adjustment, it is not a great film. And you can tell both films are adaptation of plays, adaptations of plays. I mean, the settings are very intimate. And um, it's really just these sort of uh, close and intimate examinations of these, of these uh, close personal relationships. And it's interesting just exploring Geraldine Page and Wendy Hiller are the two spinster sisters. Dean Martin is their brother. And just watching the dynamic between the two sisters play out and how Geraldine Page's character has a sort of, uh, there's a bit of a codependency happening between her and her brother because Dean Martin's character, like I said, is always getting involved in some get-rich-quick scheme. He's always writing them, asking them for money. So he does depend on them, even though he's a bit of an absentee. And uh, Geraldine Page's character, the elder sister, kind of re she, rely she relies on that power. And you see her during the course of this film trying very, very hard to preserve it. And when it falls apart when it's revealed that her feelings for her brother are not entirely sisterly, if you get my meaning, then that dynamic and that power structure they have within that family sort of shifts and it begins to fall apart. And when Geraldine Page's character is faced with that, she, uh, she herself falls apart. You've been a failure all your life! What makes you think it's gonna change now? You hear me? You've been a failure! You've been a blowhard and a failure and you'll never be anything else! Julianne! Julianne! Julianne, don't go please! And uh, I love the scenes between Geraldine Page and Wendy Hiller. Uh, that said, this one has its flaws. I mean, the, that opening title sequence is really cool. I like that one a lot. And uh, it, was, it was very highly praised when it came out. Uh, however, 
I don't know, the casting of this film is kind of disjointed. I mean, Dean Martin isn't a bad actor and he's not bad in this. However, it just feels like, I don't know, it just feels kind of disjointed, like the Dean Martin's marriage with uh, Yvette Mimieux's character and the sort of, the uh, the arc between his two sisters, they sort of, I don't know, They just, it feels kind of, again, I don't want to say, maybe not schizophrenic, because that's probably too strong a word, but it doesn't really... I don't know, the whole thing just doesn't really come together. But that said, um, Geraldine Page and Wendy Hiller are always worth the price of admission, and they are both excellent in this, as always. Well, he's gone. He'll come back. Won't he? Won't he? Goodbye, Carrie. But he'll want you here when he comes back. He'll want us both the way it was. Oh, you'll be back too. You don't fool me. And he'll be back too. I know he'll be back. Of course, he always has come back. Always. And when he does, we'll all just pretend that none of this ever happened. None of it. And then he'll take me in his arms and he'll say, Carrie Pie, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And uh, the two of them got Golden Globe nominations for this. And that's really all there is to say about Toys in the Attic. I mean, I'm, I was trying not to belabor it, but um, another entry in the Hill catalog that uh, that has its flaws. That said, his next film, I am especially fond of, and it's one of my favorites of his. The third film by George Roy Hill is called The World of Henry Orient. This came out in 1964. So The World of Henry Orient essentially follows... Two teenage high school girls, played by Mary Spath and Tippi Walker, um, who develop an obsession with a second-rate concert pianist, who is played by <laughs> Peter Sellers. And um, Tippi Walker's character actually develops an infatuation for him. Isn't it awful? But we read all about him in a magazine. He's been mad about a dozen times. You still got the magazine? Well, I don't know. I'll ask her. Not that it matters. I love him anyway. I adore him. You can tell the whole world if you want to that I, Valerie Campbell Boyd, love and adore the great and beautiful and wonderful Henry Orient. World without end. Amen. But look. No, you look. Isn't he absolutely divine? Hey, yeah, he really is cute, but I thought you said he needed practice. Oh, Gilbert, have you no soul? Of course he needs practice, especially on the scales, but this is love, Gilbert. And the two of them begin stalking him and following him around, and shenanigans ensue. And this is a really lovely movie, I gotta say. It, it, it's sweet, it's endearing, uh, it's charming, and I think what it's about, really, it's, uh, it's basically an ode to innocence and escapism and imagination. But before I get into that, uh, let's just run through the particulars of this one. So the Mary Spath and Tippi Walker were the two lead actresses. This was actually Mary Spath's only film, and she is excellent in this, as is Tippi Walker. Peter Sellers, this was his first American film. Uh, Paula Prentice, Angela Lansbury is in this as well. The great Angela Lansbury, I'm a huge fan of hers. Tom Bosley, who you might know from the sitcom Happy Days if you were of a certain generation. Phyllis Thaxter, who I especially love in this. She plays uh, the mother to Mary Spath's character. And B.B. Osterwald is great in this as well. She plays their older friend, an older divorcee friend who lives with them. 
And uh, the two of them are especially great in this. And Al Lewis shows up briefly as a store owner. Al Lewis was in a series called The Munsters way back when he played Grandpa Munster. And the music was done by Elmer Bernstein, the great Elmer Bernstein, very decorated and beloved composer. He, uh, he actually worked on several George Roy Hill films, and this was his first. And so this film is based on a 1958 novel by Nora Johnson. This was partly based on her experiences in an all-girl private school, all-girls private school in New York City, which is where the film is, uh, is set and shot. And Nora Johnson's father was Nunnally Johnson. Nunnally Johnson was a, uh, another very well-respected and decorated screenwriter and director in Hollywood. He wrote and directed a movie called The Three Faces of Eve with the great Joanna Woodward. She won her Oscar for this. And he also uh, did The Man of the Gray Flannel Suit with one Gregory Peck. And so, Nora Johnson's novel was actually pretty positively, positively received. Uh, but her father, Nunley, didn't think it could be adapted for the screen initially, and it actually took a few years before he took a stab at uh, adapting it. While he was putting his own script together, Nora Johnson was actually writing her own adaptation of her novel. There was interest from Fox initially, but they ended up selling it to United Artists. United Artists had a deal with Pan Arts, which was George Roy Hill's company, uh, his production company with a man named Jerome Hellman who was the producer of this film, and they, the two of them actually went back to... They knew each other from their days in television. The rights ended up getting bought by uh, Pan Arts and United Artists. Uh, Nunnally Johnson and Nora Johnson uh, agreed to split the fee 50-50. And so that's how the uh, the novel was uh, made it to the screen. And this was, like I said, Peter Sellers' first American film. Uh, this actually came out right after Dr. Strangelove, the classic Stanley Kubrick film. This was... Uh, I don't know. I have uh, I have a fondness for this film. The performances are lovely, especially from the two lead actresses. I suppose if you're a viewer watching this film, I guess you could you could look at it as as a sort of return to innocence, because even though they're basically following this pianist around and stalking him and, and concocting these sort of fantasies about them, about him rather, I don't know. You, you're basically following these two children essentially sort of uh, living out their imagination, living out their fantasies, and there's an innocence to it, and it's very sweet, it's very charming. And like I said, the performances are marvelous. My trouble was I couldn't dream. That's my trouble. Dr. Greentree gets so mad if I don't dream. I dream all the time. Now you stay out of this. You're normal. Have you ever tried eating a, a bowl of chili con carne before retiring? Gives you nightmares, doesn't it? Honey child, psychiatrists love nightmares. Hey, I tell you what, I'll give her some of my dreams. Say, that's a wonderful idea. You can tell him my dreams and then tell us what he said, and I'll get treated for nothing. And then he'll be one of us. <laughs> that's right, three kooks and a hitchhiker. What I especially like about it is, like I said, they're following around this pianist. Peter Sellers plays him, and he's a total phony. He's a terrible concert pianist. They go to, they go to see a live performance of his... And he really ain't all that. And he's also a total fraud. He is he is the dumbest and most paranoid character of the bunch. He's a total fake. He, he puts on all these different phony accents with the women that he's trying to woo. He puts on a French accent and some, some sort of Eastern European rendition of something. And he's, he's actually from Brooklyn and he, he puts on this sort of, you know, this whole facade. And he hides this awful, awful Brooklyn accent. I'm afraid I have some rather stupid news. What do you mean? My husband knows about tonight. Oh, uh, how could he? It seems the children were following us. You sure? Quite. 
Listen, uh, was he, uh, was he violent? Well, it, it wasn't very pleasant. All right, now listen, uh, my love, listen. Uh, 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 first of all, don't worry. There was always this risk, and now, uh, now that it's out in the open, I, for one, welcome the challenge. But uh, we can't talk on the phone now, because it may be bugged. I, I want to see you first thing in the morning, see? But Henry... Listen, my darling, listen, listen, listen. Uh, just don't panic. Above all, don't panic. Just remember one thing. I am with you, and we're going to see this thing through together, come hell or high water. Yes, but I... No more time to talk now, my darling. Buona notte, carissima. Goodbye, my sweet love. And I guess that's another that's another conclusion you can draw from this film is don't ever meet your heroes because there's a good chance you'll be disappointed. But uh, in any case, these two girls are, like I said, trying to live out their fantasy, trying to live out these uh, these sort of these preconceived notions that they've that they've concocted in their head about this pianist. And um, of course, their idealized version of him couldn't be farther from the truth. And that's where a lot of the comedy of, in this film comes from. And I love the way it ends in that it. Uh, the two girls take the next step toward womanhood. They begin living in reality, and it sort of uh, ends with them moving on to the next phase of the their adolescence, where they ditch the sort of childlike fantasies and and the escapism, if you will, and they have other things on their mind. They start, you know, they start dolling themselves up and talking about boys and all that good stuff. I really do highly recommend this, and I think this is probably the best introduction to George Roy Hill's work if I had to, if I had to pick one if you if you if you want to get acquainted with it, with his films um this is really is probably the best place to start the good thing about preparing for this show is that I get to, I get to see all the movies in order and chronologically which is which is great it's it's a really really fun and comprehensive experience but I think but like I said the first two not the greatest and just to go back to that sort of uh the sort of nostalgic quality of a lot of his films uh I think a lot of that I think that sort of the the world of Henry Orient is where that's that begins. A few interesting production notes on this. So the role of Henry Orient, which was ultimately played by Peter Sellers, was actually offered to Rex Harrison, who won an Oscar for My Fair Lady in 1964, the same year this came out. Actually, uh, he turned down the role of Henry Orient because apparently he didn't think the part was big enough. <laughs> and as far as casting the uh, the two girls uh, went. Hill and Hellman actually had a very hard time finding the right actresses for these two central roles. Mary Spath actually didn't have much acting experience. She had been in a small high school production, I believe. And she got cast on the recommendation by the head of her high school drama department. The head of, her, the, head of the department recommended her to a talent scout. And as for Tippi Walker, she had been working as a, as a model. And she had been working with a photographer uh, who later became a director named uh, Howard Zeef. And it was Howard Zeef who recommended her to Jerome Hellman. And that was how uh, she ended up getting involved in the picture. So Mary Spath and Tippi Walker, who were both fantastic in this, like I said, they, they, they really do carry it. Uh, the two of them got cast based on recommendations. And this was after Hill and Hellman had auditioned hundreds of girls for these two parts. So the film began shooting in New York in late summer. This was in late July. And uh, shooting ran until October. And uh, there's a short sequence in, in Central Park during... It's, it's in the dead of winter. I mean, there's snow all over the place. That was actually shot well after production had wrapped. Interestingly enough, like I said before, this was Mary Spath's only film. She quit acting. She became a reporter for a little while. She worked in telecommunications. She was a producer on 2020. 
And then she ended up getting into, uh, into public relations. She did PR for the Federal Trade Commission in the States. And she ended up working as Ronald Reagan's White House Director of Media Relations in the early 80s. Tippi Walker, on the other hand, actually took a much different path. So she kept acting, acting after the making of uh, The World of Henry Orient. However, she quit show business in the early 70s. She had done a couple films. She had done a bit of work in TV. Um, but she ended up leaving show business in the early 70s. She is now in her 70s. She lives in Connecticut, as far as I know. And what I found out while researching The World of Henry Orient was that in the late 2000s, so Tippi Walker had been off the radar for 30-plus years at this point. I think this was in around 2008. Tippi Walker, her full name is Elizabeth Tipton Walker. Tipton Walker. She went on an IMDb message board, and she claimed in these message board posts that she and George Roy Hill actually fell in love during the making of The World in Henry Orient and had and actually had a relationship that lasted through most of her senior year in high school. Tippi Walker was 16 when The World of Henry Orient was made. George Roy Hill, like I said, made his first film at the age of 40. He was in his early 40s at this time, not to mention married with children. So uh, he was a bit of a creep, old Georgie, it turns out. And um, in these message word posts, Tippi Walker said that their relationship was mostly platonic. I don't have any details as to what exactly she meant by that. Uh, but in any case, this whole... Um, these message board posts, I, uh, I haven't found the originals, but the, um, these revelations were picked up by The New Yorker. There was actually an article written by John Colapinto in 2012 that you can find online. And it was her relationship with, uh, with, uh, with George Roy Hill that kind of ruined her career in show business because she became the subject of a lot of rumors. A lot of people were talking behind her back. Some people alleged that she had slept with George Roy Hill in order to win the part for The World of Henry Orient, even though that was far from the case. Uh, and she ended up leaving show business in the early 70s. And like I said, she now lives in Connecticut. There was, uh, there was an, There's an interview with her on, uh, on YouTube uh, that she did on the, the, 50 year, the 50th anniversary of The World of Henry Orient. And I watched it as part of my preparation. And she doesn't mention her, this relationship she had with Hill at all. She talks about the experience of the making of the film and how she got the part and but she really didn't explore this this relationship that she claimed to have had with Hill uh, but in any case she is now in her 70s she lives in Connecticut she basically makes her own art she's uh, she writes she does clown performances and so uh, she and Mary Spath took very very different paths <laughs> but the two of them are fantastic in, the, in this film I gotta say the film itself wasn't hugely successful it didn't do a whole lot at the box office. That said, it did get nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture Comedy. And uh, it was later uh, adapted for... Uh, it later became a musical on Broadway, which George Roy Hill directed. It was called Henry Sweet Henry. This was in 1967. This was after he made his next film, Hawaii, which we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, so Henry Sweet Henry was on Broadway. It had a short run. didn't last very long. Uh, and it was starring Don Amici. Don Amici was, uh, was an Oscar-winning actor who won... Best Supporting Actor for the Ron Howard movie, Cocoon, in the mid-80s. Uh, but in any case, like I said, a very a very sweet and lovely film, which I highly recommend. Even though it turns out that George Roy Hill was a creep. So, Hill's next film is called Hawaii. This came out in 1966. It was based on the sprawling novel by James A. Michener. 
and it essentially covers a Calvinist missionary during the 1800s who goes to Hawaii with his wife and another missionary who's actually a native Hawaiian so that they can convert the Hawaiian natives and introduce them to Christianity and, you know, show them the way of the gospel and so on and so forth. Now, this is starring the great Julie Andrews, Max von Sydow. He plays Reverend Abner Hale, who is the Calvinist missionary who goes to... Uh, goes to Hawaii to spread Christianity. A young Gene Hackman, this was shortly before Bonnie and Clyde. The great Richard Harris, a great Irish actor who was in The Sporting Life, Gladiator. And rounding out the main cast was a woman named Jocelyn Lagarde, who was actually from Tahiti. And this was her only film appearance, an Oscar-nominated film appearance, and we're going to talk about her, her a little more in a, in, a, in a second. I gotta say, like I mentioned before, a lot of... Uh, Hill's work in the 60s was pretty hit or miss. This was a miss. Even though it got nominated for quite a few awards, it got nominated for seven Oscars, I believe. This one is a bit of a letdown. First of all, it's very sprawling, and it was a very daunting undertaking. James Michener's novel is a very... It's a, a massive piece of work, and trying to distill even a part of it for the screen is a very, very big undertaking. Uh, that said... Uh, the, film, it's, the film is close to three hours long. It kind of meanders. It loses steam after... Spoiler alert, the death of uh, Jocelyn Lagarde's character. So what happens is Max von Sydow, Reverend Ab Abner Hale, takes his family to Hawaii with the other missionary to convert the Hawaiian natives. And of course, it's a huge class of, clash of cultures. And Max von Sydow is kind of sanctimonious and self-righteous and very, very highfalutin. And he tries to convert the Hawaiians to Christianity. They, of course, have their own traditions, their own language. And despite being very sort of warm and open-hearted and simple people, I mean, you know, they're, they're very primitive people, there's inbreeding and all that stuff happening. And so I suppose what the film is trying to examine is these missionaries going to a place that is undeveloped and sort of a paradise on earth and a very picturesque and beautiful. And because of the culture clash, because of what ensues, because of the, uh, the ramifications of the missionary efforts, in Hawaii, you're sort of left wondering whether uh, whether this paradise, this island paradise, was uh, was better left untouched. And you see Max von Sydow's character, like I said before, he's very sanctimonious, very highfalutin, very sort of uh, has a very sort of holier than thou attitude, and he's not preaching the gospel from a place of love. say you put door bad place. Kahunas. They come for help, new kind God. He's not a new God, he's the only God. And the Kahunas have nothing to do with his church. They say more better no make war. Keep ever side open. This way make strong when whistling wind come. Whistling wind? What are you talking about? The kind wind come when Ali Nui die. Nonsense. The film is three hours long. It kind of loses steam, I don't know, about an hour and a half in. Uh, and another thing I don't like about it, and this is, it's funny, this this film was shot on location. It was shot in Hawaii and in Tahiti as well, I believe. And Hill even went so far as to, to import props from literally all over, the, all over the world, from the Philippines and Japan, Taiwan, I think, as well. All of this for the sake of authenticity, which is great and that's commendable. And yet, when you watch this film... And this is the case with a lot of sort of uh, expensive, 
elaborate uh, historical epic Hollywood productions. Everything looks too clean. It all looks just sort of very glossy and polished. And despite Hill's best efforts, it does look kind of... Uh, it does look kind of fake, kind of plastic, if you will. Um, just the aesthetic of the film itself. And, and you know, that certainly doesn't, doesn't help because it's got enough flaws as it is. I mean, Julie Andrews' character, she was... She was horribly underused. And Richard Richard Harris's character basically doesn't even need to be there at all. I love Richard Harris. Fantastic actor. But his character just sort of comes and goes. And he really doesn't contribute much to the plot. He doesn't... He really doesn't serve much purpose in the film. They honestly could have done without him. And there's there was a lot of fat that could have been trimmed off this thing. And it really just does lose steam. This was actually... Like I said before, a very big undertaking, and it ran into a lot of complications. George Roy Hill actually wasn't the original uh, director of this picture. So what happened was, the original director was going to be Fred Zinnemann. Fred Zinnemann directed A, Hand, a Hat Full of Rain, From Here to Eternity, A Man for All Seasons. Fantastic director. And he was going to adapt Michener's novel with a writer named Daniel Taradash. They were going to make two adaptations. The project fell through. Fred Zinnemann ended up going to the UK to direct A Man for All Seasons. And Hill stepped in to take over. Dalton Trumbo, who he had been blacklisted uh, by the House of Un-American Activities Committee for, uh, for, being, uh, for being a communist. And he had, uh, he had made some revisions to the script. And George Roy Hill stepped in to direct for, for Fred Zinnemann. And even after that, Hill began clashing with the studio. And this was another thing. George Roy Hill was very set in his ways, based on several accounts I've heard, and it's going to come up again a couple more times as we as we sort of continue to look at his work. Uh, he clashed with the producers uh, to the point where they wanted him gone. They were going to replace him with Arthur Hiller, who uh, directed The In-Laws in the 70s. Uh, they wanted Hill gone. The budget for the film uh, had gone up to $14 million. And when the producers moved to replace him, the native Polynesians who were who had been cast in the film, they had actually uh, Hill had actually earned their support over the course of the shoot. And when the studio moved to replace Hill, they actually went on strike and said, "We will not work for another director." And so that's what uh, they essentially saved George Roy Hill's job, and the picture ended up costing, uh, I believe, fifteen million dollars. And I want to talk about Jocelyn Lagarde, who, like I said, was from Tahiti. She did not speak English, and she was not an actress at all. She screen tested for the part of the den mother, the sort of tribe, the 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 leader of the native Hawaiian tribe that uh, Max von Sydow tries to convert to Christianity, and she only spoke French. But the uh, the makers of the film were actually impressed with her screen test. They said she had uh, they were impressed with just her presence on screen. And uh, Jocelyn Lagarde ended up learning her lines phonetically with a coach. And this was her only film. She ended up getting for, uh, nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in 1966. And uh, she ended up winning a Golden Globe. Uh, but she never appeared on screen again. Aloha nu! Aloha nu! Aloha nu means love intense. Oh! I like you here. You stay Lahaina. Shittish mirai! Ali Nui, I'm not assigned to your island. My mission is in Honolulu. Where do you go? I not care. Here, stay here. <laughs> but Mrs. Hale is my wife. She your wife? Yes. 
I'll let you stay too. You come now. <laughs> and also another thing, Elmer Bernstein also won a Golden Globe for the music. He again worked with George Roy Hill on this. Max von Sydow was nominated for a Golden Globe, and Bette Midler actually has a, a cameo in this film. She plays a passenger on this on the, on the ship. Doesn't have any lines, and she coincidentally was from Hawaii. She was born and raised there. And that's really all there is to say about Hawaii. I mean, like I said, it uh, it meanders, it loses steam, it uh, it looks a little too polished, despite Hill's best efforts to make everything appear authentic and you know be true to the native Hawaiian culture and so on. It was a huge letdown, to be honest. <laughs> I promise we're getting to the good stuff soon. Okay, I know there's been it's there have been more misses than hits thus far. But the good stuff is coming, trust me. And that's another that's another thing that I uh, that I forgot to mention at the top of the show is that this is the other interesting thing that's that's come out of preparing for for this episode and looking at George Orwell's work is that his films that were the most decorated or the most successful are actually um, they weren't my favorites. Some of them were good, some of them not so much. I mean, Hawaii got nominated for seven Oscars, but I mean, and I don't think it's very good. But in any case, the uh, I was actually pleasantly surprised on several occasions in that uh, a few of his lesser-known films and uh, his more personal projects, those were actually the pleasant surprises of uh, of this preparation because those were, I think those his lesser-known films, I think, are his best work. But anyway, we're going to talk about all that as we move along. So, next film George Royale directed is called Thoroughly Modern Millie which was released in 1967. Now, to go back to what we mentioned at the top of the show, like I said, George Roy Hill's body of work is pretty much all over the place. I mean, he, and even even now, this is we're still in the early part of his work. We're in the first half of it, at least, and he's already gone from, <laughs> from a sort of sweet coming-of-age comedy to a historical epic to a musical. And the schizophrenia continues. <laughs> but uh, anyway, that's part of the fun, I suppose. But uh, in any case, so Thoroughly Modern Millie is a musical. That is essentially a spoof of the 1920s flapper movement. And essentially it follows Julie Andrews as Millie, the title character. She is a flapper, a modern type, as she is called in, in the film. And um, she's living in New York and trying to, make, trying to make her own way in the world. And she has ambitions of finding work with a wealthy boss and eventually marrying him. And <laughs> she uh, encounters a young love interest and she makes friends with... Uh, with a young woman who's moved in across the hall from her, and she uh, she also eventually gets entangled with uh, with a slaver ring, a human trafficking ring that that abducts that abducts young white women with no family and sells them into slavery. Now, uh, <laughs> like I said before, it's a spoof of the 1920s flapper movement. Flappers, for those who uh, who don't know, they were uh, a prototype of sorts for uh, for 20th century feminists. I mean, at least for for the time they uh they defied convention in that they they wore their hair short they wore they wore slacks pants or uh short skirts they drank they smoked now obviously by today's standards that all sounds pretty tame but of course for the time for the roaring 20s it was actually pretty all pretty brazen pretty pretty daring if you will and uh and and so julie andrews plays one of, plays one of these flapper types uh the rest of the cast mary tyler moore james fox a very good English actor who is in one of my favorite films, *The Servant*, which came out in 1963. He was also in *King Rat* with George Siegel, and he uh, he was also in *Performance* with Mick Jagger, that came out in 1970, if memory serves. Carol Channing, the great and talented Ch Carol Channing, is in this. She got nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Beatrice Lilly, who was a Canadian actress and worked primarily in the theater, this was her last film. Pat Morita, who was in *The Karate Kid*, and Jack Sue. 
another Asian American actor. They play they play Chinese henchmen, even though they were both of Japanese extraction. They play two henchmen who is, who were working with uh, Beatrice Lilly's character uh, in selling uh, these these abducted white women to slavery. It's a good musical, and also I guess we should probably get into the musical numbers and the people behind them before we actually before I actually comment on this film. <laughs> Bernstein, yet again, worked with George Roy Hill on the score, and it's a fantastic score. Andre Previn handled all the musical numbers. He, uh, he conducted and arranged them. The musical numbers were a mixed bag of new songs, which were written by Jimmy Van Heusen and Sammy Kahn, the legendary, the legendary songwriting duo. And uh, there are some older numbers mixed in there as well, some old standards. And the music is fantastic. It's hard to describe the sort of picture that Millie is. It's really one of a kind. It is a musical, I suppose you could say it was that. It has a lot of music in it, but the music isn't employed the way it is in most musicals. A lot of the singing that I do is done or used as background music. Baby face, you've got the cutest little baby face. There is no other one could take your place, baby face. Jimmy Bryant did uh, James Fox's singing. Uh, Jimmy Bryant actually also worked on West Side Story. He did the singing for uh, the character of Tony, the lead character. Now, this one, it's fun. And like a lot of George Roy Hill movies of the 60s, he, uh, this one has its flaws. I, and the musical numbers are lovely. They're, uh, I love the score by Elmer Bernstein as well. But as much as I love the numbers, they sort of get in the way of the story. It, uh, there's just so many of them that the main story arc, this is sort of... Uh, Julie Andrews' pursuit, Millie's pursuit of romance. It's it sort of plods along at a very very slow pace because there are just so many musical numbers. They get in, they get in the way of the plot. They get a, they get in the way of the story development. And by the time uh, it comes time for the whole slavering arc to get resolved, the movie's pretty much lost momentum. I mean, it, the the whole picture runs at about two and a half hours. It it unfortunately a lot like Hawaii actually. It it kind of fizzles out towards the end. That said, like a lot of George Roy, Roy Hill films, uh, it's very charming, it's very endearing. Julie Andrews is always worth the price of admission. She is fantastic in this. Strangely enough, I didn't find it too hard to get into the mood of the 20s because I had done The Boyfriend on Broadway, which was a musical play about the 20s. It helped me get the style for the movie. Millie is a kind of wonderful girl who tries to do good by everyone and usually ends up getting in a hopeless mess and doing everything wrong. Carol Channing is great. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore is fantastic. The musical numbers are lovely. Uh, Beatrice Lilly is great in this as well. So, uh, so it, is, it, it, is a, it is a fun, albeit flawed film, and uh, it, it really is a very good musical. But, like I said, definitely some, some structural flaws, if you will. Now, some interesting production notes on this. According to an article in the Chicago Tribune, George Roy Hill was actually fired from the production during the editing process. The studio, this was produced by a man named Ross Hunter, who had actually acted in musicals as a, as a youth. This, was, this film was put together with uh, the help of his production company. And by the time uh, the editing process came, George Roy Hill was fired because... He and the producers disagreed on the length of the film. George Roy Hill wanted the film to be shorter, and rightfully so, as I said before, because it meanders and kind of loses momentum and fizzles out towards the end. 
So George Rahill was actually was actually quite right about this, and uh, yet again he clashed with with his collaborators, and he uh, was very set in his ways. Unfortunately, it cost him his job this time around. Working with George Rahill was just marvelous, and we got along famously together. We had a wonderful cast for the movie. We had John Gavin and B. Lilly, Mary Tyler Moore, Carol Channing, James Fox. And I must say, we did adore making the movie, all of us. And the producers wanted to release a roadshow version. So those of you who are of a certain generation of a certain age may remember these old presentations in the old movie palaces. A roadshow version has uh, overture music, it has an intermission, it has outro music, and and... I believe this is the version that is still mostly in circulation, and it's it's the one I saw. And I quite like it, but again, it came at the expense of the story. It definitely could have been much tighter. And there's even, like, this is one example that comes to mind. There's this, there's this musical number early on in the film that takes place at a Jewish wedding that has absolutely nothing to do with the story. It doesn't move anything forward. It's a lovely musical number, as much as I love it. It really doesn't contribute anything. And there's a couple of those that just, that just get in the way of the story and, and cause the picture to lose momentum. Uh, that said, despite its flaws, it was very successful. And also, Beatrice Lilly plays the woman who runs the apartment building where Julie Andrews and Mary Tyler Moore's characters live. And she is also the sort of architect, if you will, of this underground slave ring. Beatrice Lilly, like I said, Canadian actress, this was her last film. She was uh, in her 70s when, when this film was made. And legend has it, uh, I found this in a couple sources, uh, apparently she was battling Alzheimer's at the time this movie was made, and she had a hard time, of course, remembering her lines, and she had a really tough time on set. And um, Julie Andrews, she actually had to hang around during Beatrice Lily's scenes uh, when she was off camera and sort of uh, help her with her lines, give her cues. And nonetheless, despite Beatrice Lily's difficulty and, you know, her, her battle with Alzheimer's, uh, she is actually really good in this. I, I, I quite like her performance a lot. And she was also a, a Tony Award nominee. Like I said, she, uh, she did most of her work in the theater and uh, got nominated for a couple, a couple Tonys over the course of her career. In any case, like Hawaii, this also got seven Oscar nominations and uh, was also nominated for five Golden Globes, and Julie Andrews was nominated for a Golden Globe. And uh, like I said, it's, it's a flawed picture, definitely lacking in its, uh, as far as its fundamentals are concerned, and definitely could have been much tighter, but nonetheless, very entertaining, very charming, very sweet, some very good performances. The musical numbers alone are, uh, are worth the price of admission, I'd say. Now, on to the next. The next film is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. This came out in 1969, and this is the uh, a bit of a turning point for George Roy Hill. This, he, uh, he really hit his stride after this. From Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, basically through the 1970s, he really released a string of, of, uh, of really great pictures, and again, of varying genres. And um, this, that, uh, that hot streak, if you will, begins with this one, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. So it essentially follows... Uh, it's based on two real outlaws. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid were two real bandits in the Old West. Butch Cassidy is played by Paul Newman, and the Sundance Kid is played by Robert Redford. And it, it follows the two of them who are on the run from a crack team of law enforcement agents after pulling off a string of robberies. And they try to flee to Bolivia and sort of carry on their, their thieving ways there. Yet this team of law enforcement agents is always hot on their trail. Now this is interesting. I want to talk a bit about this. Uh, before I get into the particulars of the picture. Now, it's interesting. This one, it's a Western, but it defies convention in a lot of ways, and there's some interesting parallels between Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and a movie called The Wild Bunch, another Western, which also came out in 1969. Now, firstly, one way that this defies convention is that Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid are outlaws. They're bandits, they're thieves, they're crooks. Yeah. However, 
as opposed to walking head-on into confrontation, as opposed to braving their enemies with their pistols at the ready. They spend much of the picture actually fleeing their enemies, which is very unlike the sort of uh, the paradigm, the archetype of American Westerns, if you will. And that was one thing that actually didn't sit well with a lot of the, the studios that William Goldman tried to set, sell his script to. William Goldman did the screenplay. He was a fantastic novelist and screenwriter, wrote All the President's Men and Marathon Men, among many other great things. He wrote the script of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and when he tried to get it sold, pretty much every studio he went to turned him down, uh, mostly because these two main characters are on the run for most of it. And that's not, that's, not the we and that's not the American Western way. That's not what American bandits do. That's not what, that's not what John Wayne would do. Ready? No, we'll jump. Like hell we will. No, it'll be okay. If the water's deep enough, we don't get squished to death. They'll never follow us. How do you know? Would you make a jump like that and you didn't have to? I have to, and I'm not gonna. Well, we got to, otherwise we're dead. They're just gonna have to go back down the same way they come. Come on, just one clear shot, that's all I come want. Come on. Uh -uh. We got to. Up. Get away from me. Why? I want to fight them. They'll kill us. Maybe. You want to die? Do you? All right. I'll jump first. No. Then you jump first. No, I said. What's the matter with you? I can't swim. So definitely not a conventional Western in that sense. And uh, the reason I, I want to talk about The Wild Bunch as well, which came out in 1969, directed by Sam Peckinpah, who we're going to be uh, covering on this show in the, in the not-too-distant future, there's some interesting parallels between these two films in that, one, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they're outlaws, and they know their way of life, their, their trade, the sort of bandit, the bandit ways of the Old West are going the way of the Dodo. They're not going to be able to live like this for much longer. And basically, what much of the film covers is that not only are they on the run from this team of crack law enforcement agents, they are basically desperately trying to find a way or find a place where they can sort of keep living the way they've been living and sort of fight fight progress, fight the inevitable, fight, fight the changing times. And on the other side of that, you have this film, The Wild Bunch, which came out in the same year. And again, it's another group of grizzled old outlaws, different personalities, people who don't shy away from violence, and not just that, aren't afraid of leaving a lot of collateral damage and a lot of innocent casualties in their wake. And yet, their str the struggle of the characters in The Wild Bunch is very much the same. It's a group of guys who know that times are changing. They see, they see the evidence of progress in the changing times in front of them. They know their time to keep living this way is limited. And um, both these films are basically following these characters when they're faced with a window that is closing a lot quicker than they're comfortable with. And so with that said, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, they're on the run from law enforcement agents. Butch Cassidy is basically the dreamer and sort of the brains of the, of the duo. He comes up with some sort of pipe dream, pie-in-the-sky scheme to, to go to Bolivia where they can keep robbing banks with ease and keep, you know, keep living large and carrying on their thieving ways uninterrupted or with minimal interruption, minimal interference. And law enforcement remains hot on their trail. And... Much like in The Wild Bunch, you see evidence of the changing times, which in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is, evidence, is evidenced by the arrival of the bicycle, which at that time was a, a massive innovation. And in the film, it's actually quite plainly anointed as the future. 
And so that's the story of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in a nutshell. It's basically about these two bandits trying, trying desperately to preserve their way of life. And without having to shed any blood. <laughs> and I quite like, like this one a lot. I gotta say, I, I was never much of a Robert Redford fan. I've, I, I never really thought he was a bad actor, per se. Uh, I just never found him particularly interesting. I found him pretty vanilla. But I will say he and Paul Newman are, are a fantastic duo. And Paul Newman plays Butch Cassidy, and he's the more affable of the two, sort of the the warmer personality. He's the dreamer of the two. And Robert Redford's character, his the, his Sundance kid, is basically a much more laconic and sullen and a man of few words. And uh, they're, they're a really fantastic duo, and I, I, I really like the chemistry they had. And apparently... Uh, from uh, from what I understand, the two of them actually liked, e liked each other quite a lot. They were quite fond of each other. They didn't know each other prior to this film, and they, they, they got along famously on set. And of course, when you're playing uh, two best friends, that uh, that obviously helps. A couple of production notes on this thing. Uh, so, like I said before, William Goldman wrote the screenplay, and he had a very hard time getting it sold. Couldn't find a studio to buy it. Uh, and uh, again, as we mentioned in our first episode... Uh, the John Cassavetes episode, shameless plug. Hollywood is no stranger to absurdity, and uh, according to William Goldman, all he did was change a couple pages in the script, and uh, suddenly every studio wanted to buy it, and uh, <laughs> he uh, found a taker in 20th Century Fox. They ended up putting the movie out, and uh, Paul Newman had a production company with a guy named John Foreman, and uh, they ended up co-producing the film. The rest of the cast of the film, Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Catherine Ross plays at a place who is the love interest to uh, Robert Redford's Sundance Kid, Catherine Ross, Oscar-nominated actress. She had done uh, The Graduate, Mike Nichols' film with Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft a couple of years before, uh, and she's really good in this as well. Strother Martin, fantastic character actor. He and Paul Newman actually made a few films together. They had done Cool Hand Luke together, and they did Slapshot later on. We're going to talk about that later. Uh, Strother Martin shows up for a little bit in this. Cloris Leachman, who passed away earlier this year, unfortunately, uh, she shows up in a small role. This was uh, a couple of years before she won her Oscar for The Last Picture Show, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, so some really good actors in this. And um, there is actually uh, a documentary about the making of the film on YouTube, and it's narrated by George Roy Hill. And I recommend, uh, I recommend checking it out just, just to see how, how, the, uh, how the proverbial sausage was made. Uh, this was shot primarily in the United States and Mexico. And a lot of the cast and crew actually got Montezuma's Revenge while they were, while they were shooting in Mexico. Montezuma's Revenge, for those who don't know, uh, if you go to Mexico, don't drink the water. Because uh, you'll get treated to an awful case of diarrhea. A lot of the cast and crew made that mistake during the shoot in Mexico, and, and, and they paid for it. Another thing, initially, a couple casting notes. Robert Redford, uh, at this time, although he became uh, a household name, a star, during the 1970s, at this time, he was in his early 30s. And uh, he was not a very well-known actor. He had done a handful of films, uh, but not a household name by any means. And uh, the studio didn't want him to play the Sundance Kid, uh, but he ended up getting the role because George Roy Hill, among several other people, went to bat for him. The, uh, the studio didn't want me. It was 20th Century Fox. And um, they wanted two stars. I think they wanted Steve McQueen at that time and Paul. And I guess the beauty of the story, and to my fortune, Paul and the writer, and George in particular. George, George is the one that went to the mat for it. He said, look, it's my movie. I'm the director. And finally, as I understood it, they just kept beating him up, and he beat them up, and they kept forcing him to look at other actors. And they ran out of other actors. 
And among the people considered were Jack Lemmon, the great Jack Lemmon. He reportedly turned down the role of Sundance, and Warren Beatty and Steve McQueen uh, also both turned it down. Uh, Steve McQueen was actually strongly considered to play the Sundance kid alongside Paul Newman. Uh, the two of them, I believe, had a, uh, a disagreement of sorts, and he ended up backing out. And I'm honestly quite relieved Warren Beatty didn't get the role of Sundance Kid because I never liked him as an actor at all. But that's another discussion for another day. Uh, and also, for the Catherine Ross role of Etta Place, the great Jacqueline Bissett, or Bissett, was, uh, was considered. She is an actress I'm quite fond of. She was in Bullet with Steve McQueen, which came out the year before Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. She was in Murder on the Orient Express, The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean, uh, Under the Volcano, Day for Night, the François Truffaut movie. She's, she's really great in that. Um, but the role ultimately ended up going to Catherine Ross. Catherine Ross, speaking of which, so she and George Roy Hill reportedly did not get along during the making of this film. Now, if you watch the documentary on the making of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, George Roy Hill, he alludes to it a little bit. He does mention that of all the actors on the picture, he had the hardest time working with Catherine Ross. But he kind of glossed over it. He didn't get into the nitty-gritty. Catherine had very decided opinions on how to play her part. She's a very intelligent girl, but I didn't always agree with her. Actually, my communication with her was the least good uh, of any of the actors, and it led at times to uncomfortable moments on the set. But ultimately, if an actor or an actress has talent and a strong set of convictions, and persuasion can't move them, uh, sometimes it's better just to back off and go with them, uh, rather than create a situation where neither one of you gets what you want. Uh, and from what I've read, I've heard this from a couple of sources, apparently what happened was, very early on in the shoot, Catherine Ross showed up to set. She was not shooting a scene. Uh, and Conrad Hall, the cinematographer, he apparently was short a camera operator and Catherine Ross had come to set. And she, she uh, I don't know if she volunteered or if it was Conrad Hall's idea, but apparently he put her on on uh, the camera that was lacking an operator. He uh, basically showed her how to use it and what to do for the scene. Apparently, and then uh, George Roy Hill came onto the set, got wind of it somehow, and he was none too pleased. And... Uh, he reacted by barring Catherine Ross from the set on days where she wasn't working. And like I said, this was very early on in the shoot, so it basically soured their working relationship for the remainder of it, from what I understand. And also, another thing which I found interesting, uh, George Roy Hill did not like people showing up late to set, which was a problem with Robert Redford, because he showed up 10 or 15 minutes late, according to George Roy Hill. Uh, on most shooting days, and apparently Paul Newman used to bust his balls about it, and rightfully so. Actors can sometimes be a terrible pain in the ass with their jealousy of each other, but on this one, even though they didn't know each other before they started, uh, Bob and Paul consciously established a relationship that was excellent. It included Redford's having to laugh at all of Newman's god-awful jokes, and Newman had to put up with Redford showing up anywhere from 10 to 15 minutes late all the time. In any case... George Roy Hill did not like people showing up late to set, and rightfully so. And according to Paul Newman, he said this in an interview, if uh, you showed up late to set, he would take you up in his plane, his own private plane, and scare the shit out of you. He'd take you for a bit of a joyride. Um, I don't know if he did that with Robert Redford, but if he did, apparently it, it didn't take, because he was, uh, he was a repeat offender from what I understand. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about before we move on to the next film was the music. The music was done by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Burt Bacharach and Hal David were a legendary songwriting duo. I believe the bulk of their work was done at Columbia Records, if I'm not mistaken. They wrote many, many classics, including Walk On By, which was done by Dionne Warwick and Isaac Hayes. They also wrote What the World Needs Now. I believe that's the, the title of it. 
So in any case, they did the music for the film, and the music was actually very... The reception to the music of the film was actually very polarizing. Uh, even though there's le there's less than 12 minutes of music in the entire film, there's only a couple of numbers. The music, for one thing, is anachronistic, meaning that it does not... It is not music of the time in which the film is set. It's They basically went with a more, with a more modern... With more modern music. So the music uh, was led by the song The Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head. The Dean Martin version is actually one of one of the more popular recordings out there. But in any case, um, The Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, there's that famous sequence with when, when Paul Newman is taking the bicycle for a spin and the song is that song is playing. Uh, that song in particular, in addition to the rest of the music, because it was anachronistic, uh, it did not sit well. Robert Redford was puzzled by it. He, he admitted this in an interview and... Um, a lot of people who saw the film and critics alike weren't uh, very receptive to the score. Nonetheless, Burt Bacharach and Hal David got nominated for Oscars. And another thing, the real Butch Cassidy, his sister, a woman named Lula Parker Bettinson, Butch Cassidy's real name was Robert Leroy Parker, his sister was Lula Parker Bettinson. She was only a child when Butch Cassidy left home, and she was alive at the time Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid was being made. And uh, Robert Redford actually tells a story. She had visited... Uh, I believe she had visited the set, but the uh, the producers actually wanted to buy her off so that she could support the film, or and that she wouldn't and that she wouldn't con so she wouldn't condemn it over any sort of historical inaccuracies. And uh, she and uh, Robert Redford struck up a bit of a friendship, and uh, she apparently drove a hard bargain when she was negotiating with the studio. They were trying to fly her out to the premiere. She had never been on a plane before in her life, and um, yeah, she uh, she was not an easy sell. And so finally, the guy who got so desperate, he said, "But, but look, you know, we we we've, we've got this is a lot of money that we have with this, and it's in the can. This film is in the can." And she was like looking for some money. She was like looking, "What am I going to get out of this? What are you going to give me to have me go to the premiere and talk nice about the film?" And the guy said, "Well, I, I we can't. You know, you don't understand that <laughs> the film is in the can. It's done." And she said, "Oh, okay." She says. Well, I'm not in the can. <laughs> so I knew that she and I were going get, to get along okay. When the film came out, the critics didn't like it. It, it, it. it did not, it was not met with a warm reception. That being said, the film became very successful, very quickly. And it actually ended up becoming the highest grossing film of 1969. And got nominated for a total of seven Oscars. Including Best Picture, Best Director... Best Screenplay for uh, for William Goldman. Conrad Hall got nominated for for Best Cinematography. Burt Bacharach and Hal David got nominated for the music to the film, as I said before. And uh, funny enough, Best Picture, the winner of that year in 1969, was Midnight Cowboy, which was directed by John Schlesinger and produced by Jerome Hellman, George Roy Hill's production partner at Pan at their Pan Arts company. And another couple things before we move on to the next film. I'm gonna, I just want to wrap this up because I've spent enough time talking about this film already. Uh, we mentioned Catherine Ross and uh, Conrad Hall. Conrad, the, the two of them actually met on this shoot, and uh, they soon they became husband and wife soon after. Conrad Hall was Catherine Ross's third husband, I believe. They were married for a few years. And uh, Catherine Ross is now currently married to uh, the great actor Sam Elliott, who was in uh, The Big Lebowski and The Contender and Roadhouse and a bunch of other things. Uh, and Sam Elliott actually has a bit part in this film, in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He plays a, a card player at the uh, very early on in the film, a small part. And uh, yeah, he and Catherine Ross were married many, many years after the making of this film. Uh, and one more thing about George Roy Hill, if I may. Uh, yet again, George Roy Hill, very strong-willed, very stubborn, uh, very set in his ways. 
as much as he respected Paul Newman and Robert Redford, they, he he did butt heads with Paul Newman uh, a few times on uh, during the making of the film. They had a few disagreements. And uh, George Ray Hill and William Goldman actually butted heads as well, although they did work together again later on. But in any case, yet again, further evidence of George Ray Hill just sort of refusing to back down. And with that being said, we move on to the next film in the George Ray Hill catalog, and this one is probably my favorite of all of them. One of his lesser-known ones, but uh, if I had to pick one, I'd say this is my favorite. Slaughterhouse Five, 1972, based on the Kurt Vonnegut novel. The novel came out in 1969. This is the, the first film George Roy Hill made as part of uh, a long-term deal he signed with Universal after the making of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Now, Slaughterhouse Five is basically a satirical anti-war novel, as is the film, of course. And it basically follows a World War II veteran by the name of Billy, Billy Pilgrim, who's a bit of a simp. I mean, he's a bit of a momo, not the brightest bulb. But uh, it essentially jumps around in time. It's, it's not a linear narrative, but it covers most of his life. And it covers, most importantly, his experiences in World War II and his surviving the bombing of Dresden and his time in combat. And how later on in his life, he settles down, starts a family, has kids becomes fairly successful, you know, the classic wholesome American upper-middle-class life. And later on in his life, he becomes what Kurt Vonnegut says, describes as unstuck in time. And that explains the non-linear narrative. It jumps all over the place, from childhood to the war, to, to teenage years, to, young, to adulthood, and so on. And essentially what this is, what this film is, is Kurt Vonnegut's attempt to accept or come to terms with his experience in the war and come to terms with come to terms with life and the inevitability of uh, the inevitability of death. And as Billy Pilgrim becomes unstuck in time, he eventually gets abducted to a planet called Tralfamador. And the people of Tralfamador essentially are in the fourth dimension and they tell Billy Pilgrim that life is in fact a succession of random moments and that when a person dies, when his life comes to an end, that person is in fact just transported to another time in their lives. And the film... It depicts how Billy Pilgrim responds to this revelation and how he sort of come, comes to terms with, with his own death and his, his experiences, his life, and everything he's been through. The cast of this film, Michael Sachs plays Billy Pilgrim. He's, he's very good in this and got nominated for a Golden Globe for uh, Most Promising Newcomer back when uh, that award category still existed at the Golden Globe. Uh, he plays Billy Pilgrim. Actually left film in the early to mid-1980s and actually ended up working in the tech industry. So Michael Sachs plays the lead. Ron Liebman, who is one of my favorites, may he rest in peace, uh, a fantastic New York actor who is in uh, Where's Papa, Norma Ray, uh, The Super Cops, uh, won a Tony on Broadway for uh, his portrayal of Roy, Roy Cohn in Angels in America. He was in Night Falls on Manhattan as well. Just a, a fantastic, fantastic New York actor. And he's, he's, he's really great in this. He plays Paul Lazaro, who is in Billy Pilgrim's unit and... Uh, and sort of has it, he has it out for Billy, and he vows revenge on him because he, he blames Billy Pilgrim for the death of, uh, of one of his comrades, and unjustly so, and holds a grudge for, for the rest of their days. Uh, Eugene Roche, who is an actor from Boston, I believe, he plays another one of, uh, he plays an older, an older member of Billy Pilgrim's unit, and is sort of a warm father figure to Billy Pilgrim during their time in the war together, and meets a very, very cruel and uh, disturbing fate. Valerie Perrine is in this as well. She plays a movie star who gets abducted with Millie Pilgrim to the planet of Tralfamador. Valerie Perrine, really great actress. Uh, she was nominated for Best Actress in 1974 for her portrayal of Honey Bruce in the Bob Fosse film Lenny, which covers the life of Lenny Bruce with Dustin Hoffman. Uh, great performance. Sharon Gans is in this. She plays Millie Pilgrim's 
Philly Pilgrim's wife, and she's she's excellent in this as well. Sorel Book, who was in Bye Bye Braverman, the Cindy Lumet film, and Kevin Conway, who was another great New York actor who passed away in 2020. Really great actor, did a lot of work in the theater as well. He has a small role in this. So that's the main cast. Glenn Gould, the uh, legendary pianist and composer, did the music to this. One of only, I believe, two films that he did the music for. Very rarely ever did uh, film scores. And uh, <laughs> it's funny hearing... Uh, doing the research for this. In an interview with the Chicago Tribune that George Roy Hill did in, 70, in 1972, he said, uh, most of the characters in my film are not too bright. <laughs> and it's true, like I said before. Billy Pilgrim is a bit of a simpleton, and the rest of them aren't too bright either. I mean, Ron Liebman's character, Paul Lazaro, Kevin, Kevin Conway's character, Roland Weary, and even Valerie Perrine's character. None of these people are very bright. They're all just sort of... Uh, I guess they're all just sort of these powerless victims of circumstance who are who have a sort of limited understanding of, uh, of said circumstances. Uh, that is until, of course, Billy Pilgrim gets abducted by the Tralfamadorians and is introduced to this whole sort of, uh, I believe it's called determinism, and this sort of, uh, and sort of resigns himself to, uh, to his fate. Uh, and like I said, the film really jumps around in time, the performances are great, and what I especially love about it, so this film was edited by Dee Dee Allen, who is a legendary film editor in Hollywood. She worked on uh, The Hustler and Bonnie and Clyde, Dog of the Afternoon, all kinds of classics, and she did the editing on this. And I really, really love the way this is cut together because the way it jumps around in time, just the, the cuts the cuts are so smooth and seamless where it's, for for a story that, that moves around in time as, as, as much as it does, as, as erratically as it does almost, the cuts are really just super smooth and seamless and uh, I'm not describing it very well. <laughs> but I really love what Dee Dee Allen did with the editing in this. And the way it, the way the timelines alternate, and Kurt Vonnegut actually adored uh, George Roy Hill's adaptation of uh, of his novel. It was written by a guy named Stephen Geller, and George Roy Hill directed it, of course. And uh, Kurt Vonnegut said himself shortly after the uh, the film came out, he called it a flawless rendition of his novel. And the quote, "I drool and cackle every time I watch that film because it is so harmonious with what I felt when I wrote the book," which is. Uh, as good, a, as good an endorsement as you can ask for. Well, men, do I have only one volunteer? Listen, pal, I only stood up back there to tell you that one day your doorbell's gonna ring, see? And there's gonna be this guy in a trench coat. You need German broth for so long, Campbell, because we have to. But we'd rather die than eat your gun, which is sick and lousy and foul! History will prove you an ass. bombs, eh, Campbell? I can't trust the Jews. And Kurt Vonnegut himself was a World War II veteran. Like I said before, this, uh, the, the novel Slaughterhouse-Five is basically his attempt to just sort of, uh, just sort of accept or come to terms with, the, with his experience in the war, and he was present at the bombing of Dresden. He was a, he was a prisoner of war. He, he fought in the Battle of the Bulge and uh, became a, was a, captured and became a, was a POW shortly thereafter. And um, he uh, survived the, the bombing of Dresden. This, Dresden is a city in Germany, and the Allies bombed it. This was towards the end of the war in February of 1945, and it left well over 20,000 civilians dead. I mean, the city was ravaged, and um, they were trapped in a bunker, and uh, Kurt Vonnegut survived the bombings. I mean, obviously a, a, very, a very personal project to him, and he was very pleased with what George Roy Hill did with it, as am I. Like I said, I, am, uh, I really quite like this film. I don't know if I've... Uh, I don't know how, how well I've been able to analyze it. That's a whole other story. But uh, in any case, on to the next. The Sting, 
1973. This is the second of two films, two George Roy Hill films, that Paul Newman and Robert Redford starred in together. They reunite for this one. And it's basically a crime caper. So it follows Robert Redford is a small-time grifter. He's a small-time con man in the 1930s. And he cons a crook out of a few grand, not knowing that that, that, that crook is an errand boy for a very powerful Irish crime boss named Doyle Lonergan, who's played by the great Robert Shaw. And um, Lonergan exacts revenge for the theft and has Robert Redford's partner in crime killed, after which he pairs up with Paul Newman, who is a sort of washed-up alcoholic con man, and the two of them devise a plan with many, many other grifter acquaintances to take down Doyle Lonergan and, uh, and rob him of uh, a fortune of several hundred thousand dollars. Now, again, we jump around. We went from a historical epic to a musical to a western to an anti-war film, and now we're on the crime caper. This film was hugely successful. Uh, this became the, this was the highest-grossing film of 1973. So with that and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, it gave George Roy Hill the distinction of being the only director with two film two of the top ten highest-grossing films of all time. It was made for 55 million. It grossed almost 160 million, and um, it's a really good cast too. The 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 supporting roles, especially like I said, I am not a huge Robert Redford fan. I don't know the dynamic between his character and Paul Newman's is, isn't really sort of. Uh, it's not as integral to the film as their dynamic in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And Robert Redford, I don't know, it's, it's not, uh, his performance really isn't particularly interesting in this. Paul Newman is always very affable, he's always very charming, I, I honestly love Paul Newman. Kind of a guy who always brings a little bit of himself to every role, but uh, yeah, he is, he is, he's always a treat to watch and he's very good in this. Jack's on top. Beats me. Three tens. <laughs> Tough luck, Ron Ann. But that's what you get for playing with your head up your ass. <laughs> A couple more like that, we can all go to bed early. Name's Lonergan. Doyle Lonergan. You're gonna remember that, Mr. Shaw. You're gonna get yourself another game. You follow? The supporting cast. Uh, Robert Shaw, like I said, the great Robert Shaw, who was nominated for an Oscar for A Man for All Seasons, was in several Harold, Harold Pinter play adaptations. He was in screen versions of The Caretaker and uh, The Birthday Party. He, he played Quentin Jaws, perhaps his best-known film. He was from the UK and a fantastic actor. He plays the Irish, the Irish mob boss Doyle Lonergan in this. Charles Durning plays a crooked cop who is on the trail of, uh, of Robert Redford. Charles Durning, another fantastic character actor, was in Dog Day Afternoon and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and a million and one other things. Robert Earl Jones, who was James Earl Jones' father. Eileen Brennan. Harold Gould, who was in a sitcom called Rhoda in the 70s. That was a, sit that was a spin off of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Harold Gould is really great in this, just super debonair and suave, and I really like him in this. Jack Kehoe, another great New York actor. He was in The Pope of Greenwich Village and Serpico and a bunch of other things as well. And Dimitra Arles who is one of my people, Greek lady, and uh, she shows up in this as well for a little bit. Really great cast, like I said. That said, I kind of think The Sting is a little overrated. I, uh, I like it. It's very stylized, very opulent. It's really lovely to look at, and uh, it's an interesting caper film, and like I said, as much as I love the cast and the people involved in it, I don't know. It's, it's over two hours, and it's two hours and change. And I don't have a problem with that. It's not the length. Uh, it's not the length of the film that bothers me. The two characters, Paul Newman and Robert Redford, 
they stage this very elaborate and intricate scheme to con Robert Shaw's character out of his fortune. And there are so many other grifters involved, and it's this really big elaborate charade, and the whole point of it is to pull off the con without the mark, knowing that they've been conned, or at least not figuring it out until it's way, way too late. And you see them go through this elaborate scheme, and you're along for the ride, and it's almost like... And for all it's charmed, it's almost like the viewer themselves is being charmed, even though they're in on the con to a certain extent. Uh, but by the end of it, you almost feel like you yourself were con because the payoff, the the denouement, the way this you see that you see the final sting play out, and uh, the payoff is a little underwhelming. I gotta say, you're taken on this journey of two hours and change. You finally get to the the big climactic moment, and uh, superficial as it sounds, it's pretty underwhelming. It's really not. I don't know. It's not particularly satisfying, <laughs> to be honest. Superficial as it sounds, I know. And uh, it's interesting. A little bit of backstory on this. This uh, The script for this film was written by David S. Ward. He wrote Major League and Sleepless in Seattle, among, uh, among many other things. And uh, the premise of the film was inspired by the exploits of two con artists, these brothers named Fred and Charlie Gondorf. Paul Newman's character is named Henry Gondorf in the film, a bit of a nod to the source material. David S. Ward, so he was inspired by the exploits of these two these two con men, which were covered in a book written by a guy named David Marr. And uh, another thing as well, you see uh, Robert Shaw's character has a limp in the film. And apparently, again, legend has it, apparently the limp was genuine. He, apparently he had slipped on a wet handball court somewhere in California, and uh, he had hurt his knee, and so he had to, he had to perform with a leg brace on underneath his, his baggy trousers. Uh, again, I haven't been able to verify that it's truth, but uh, print the legend, uh, so I'm going with it. George Hill intended this to be a, a bit of an homage to the, the old gangster films of the 1930s. And in order to pull off that aesthetic and, that, and pay proper tribute, he went for sort of uh, a muted color palette in the film. Uh, ver used very little camera movement, and perhaps most importantly, he, uh, he avoided using any extras which was an observation that he had made in, in the research I did. He had, he had said that, like, if you watch the old James Cagney films of the 1930s and, you know, you, you, never, see, you never see any people milling about. There's never any people on the street. There's, you rarely ever see any extras. And, and, uh, and so that's what he went for in the making of this thing, which was uh, mostly shot at Universal Studios on the, the Universal backlot. One of the things that I wanted to do with this thing was not to create the period, but to create the movie period of the time. In other words, I, instead of going down the street with a handheld camera, I emptied the streets entirely and created the look of the back lot of Warner Brothers. Because that's the, again, I wanted that kind of artificiality to go along with the, with the uh, Saturday Evening Post kind of look. I don't know. I mean, uh, I, have, I have my feelings about it, but that said, when the film came out, it, it got rave reviews. And not just that, got nominated for 10 Oscars and won seven of them. It's won Best Picture. George Roy Hill won Best Director. David S. Ward was nominated for the screenplay. And uh, interestingly enough, George Roy Hill beat out some pretty stiff competition that year. He beat out Ingmar Bergman, legendary Swedish director, Bernardo Bertolucci, who had directed Last Tango in Paris, William Friedkin, who had directed The Exorcist, and George Lucas, who was nominated for American Graffiti. That's some, some pretty heavy hitters that he beat out, and uh, frankly, I don't know. <laughs> this thing is a good movie, like I said, but... I don't know if I would have given George Roy Hill best director in that in that field. I think his better work, his best work, comes after this. Also, a little note about the music on this film: the music was done by Marvin Hamlish, another legendary composer and a three-time Oscar winner. And uh, much like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the music is uh, anachronistic. The film is set in the 1930s, 
and uh, most of the soundtrack actually uses ragtime music, which was uh, popular several decades prior. And uh, Marvin Hamlisch actually revived an old, uh, an old tune, an old ragtime tune called "The Entertainer," which had been written by Scott Joplin. And if it's instantly recognizable, um, if if you hear it, you'll recognize it for sure. So yeah, Marvin Hamlisch did a fantastic job with the music on this. And uh, like I said, a good film, an entertaining caper, very charming, very opulent, very pretty to look at. A lot of great character actors show up in this. But of the two Newman and Redford movies, I like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid better. I don't know. That's that's just me. In any case, on to the next we go. Enough of this. This next film is actually another another one of Hill, Hill's films that... Uh, another lesser-known film in his body of work. But this one was actually a really pleasant surprise for me. Uh, it's called The Great Waldo Pepper. This came out in 1975. And it is about... An old World War One veteran, played by Robert Redford, he was a pilot during the First World War, but didn't get to see any combat, was deprived of his chance, and he grinds out a living as a barnstormer. Barnstormers were basically pilots who did uh, aerial aerobics, aerial, uh, not aerial aerobics. <laughs> barnstormers were pilots who did uh, aerial acrobatics, kind of, an, uh, kind of an aerial circus, if you will, and they performed at fairs and such. So Robert Redford's Waldo Pepper is uh, eking out a living as a barnstormer, and He's trying to scrape some money together to get himself a new plane that's being built by his best friend so that he can pull off an aerial trick that no pilot has ever done before. And he's chasing greatness. He was deprived of his chance not just to, to fly in combat in World War I, but he was deprived of his chance to fight against a, a famed German pilot named Ernst Kessler. And basically what the film follows is Wallow Pepper's efforts to best Ernst Kessler in the only possible way that he can since he wasn't able to do it in combat. And a lot like the characters in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, he is, uh, he is faced with changing times. Waldo Pepper flies a biplane, which is basically these old-timey planes that have two sets of wings and a propeller in the front. Again, a kind of well-known sight. You'll, you'll know what they are when you see them. But biplanes are, are on the way out. Monoplanes are on the way in. And not just that. It's becoming harder for him to ply his trade as a barnstormer because... Because regulatory bodies are coming in. The government is implementing aviation regulations, uh, which is making it increasingly difficult for Waldo Pepper to chase his dream. And so you follow him in the film. He forms an uneasy alliance with uh, another World War I veteran and another pilot who's played by Bo Svensson, Swedish actor. They form an alliance to sort of help each other make more money. And they're trying to put together a bit of an act. They try to get inventive. They try to get creative. And... Bo Svensson's character's girlfriend, played by Susan Sarandon, is brought in on the act, and she suffers a horrible accident and loses her life. And uh, long story short, Waldo Pepper is suspended and no longer able to fly. He is no longer able to chase his Ernst Kessler. He can't chase his Moby Dick. He can't slay the whale. He can't chase greatness. He can't taste the glory that he was deprived of during his time in the war. And eventually he makes his way to Hollywood. He has a chance encounter with Ernst Kessler and eventually ends up risking or sacrificing his freedom for a chance to beat the whale, for a chance to be great, and to know what that feels like. Now, cast of this film, let's get into the particulars. Robert Redford, third picture he and Hill made together, he plays Waldo Pepper. Bo Svensson, as I mentioned before. Susan Sarandon, this film came out in 1975. The same year, Susan Sarandon did the cult classic and, uh, and Halloween favorite, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So she's in this as well. Bo Brendan, Another Swedish actor, he plays Ernst Kessler, the German pilot who uh, is a rival of Waldo Peppers and also the man that he idolizes. 
Jeffrey Lewis, a great character actor, he shows up in this as well. He was actually he he was actually Juliette Lewis's father. Edward Herman and Margot Kidder, who famously played Lois Lane in the Superman films with Christopher Reeve, she um, she has a small role. She plays Robert Redford's love interest. They have an on and off relationship, and uh, they actually have a lovely scene together in the bedroom. Robert Redford. His character Waldo Pepper has a habit of showing up when he's been banged up and needs to be needs to convalesce and be nursed back to health. And he and uh, Margot Kidder have, have a lovely and intimate scene together in uh, in the bedroom. A really nice single shot, long take. And so this also reunites George Roy Hill with William Goldman. And the two of them actually had a, a terrible falling out while working on this project. They still managed to finish it, uh, but this was, I believe, the last time they ever worked together. And um, this is arguably the most personal film George Roy Hill ever made. This was definitely a passion project for him. Like we said at the beginning of the show, he was a huge aviation buff and a history buff. And again, this is where this this nostalgia that's a common theme in his work comes up. This nostalgia, this uh, this sort of living in the past and romanticizing it. He, uh, he was a history buff and an aviation buff. He idolized the old pilots of World War I. So the parallels between his interests and this film are, are very obvious and very plain. He had uh, he had he had his own pilot's license. He was uh, he was a pilot himself in World War II in, in Korea, and uh, he had uh, a, spe- an, a special fondness for a, an old barnstormer named Speed Holman, and uh, he put a lot of care into the aerial sequences. He used real planes. The aviation sequences, the aerial sequences, were carried out by a stunt pilot named Frank Tallman. The film was shot in Texas, and. Um, like I said before, this film was a really pleasant surprise. Again, I'm not a huge Robert Redford fan, and he's okay in this. I wouldn't say he carries the film, but uh, I love the nostalgia of it, and um, I suppose I just love the idea of uh, of risking it all to chase greatness, risking your freedom, comprom- risking the the relationships in your life. It has it. It has a couple flaws. I mean, it's a little slapsticky at times, especially in the early half of the film. Don't worry, Marbeth. We're doing a great stunt. Uh, I don't want to be a stickler for accuracy, but you're just flying. She's just driving. I'm the one doing a great stunt. But like I said, the aerial sequences are a real treat to, treat to watch. They're, they are really lovely. And um, yeah, I have, I have a great fondness and a great appreciation for what George Roy Hill was going for with this film. And um, it made a profit. It's not like it fared totally poorly at the box office, but I mean, when you're following The Sting, which was the highest grossing film of 1973, I mean, that's a tough act to follow. So comparatively speaking, not very many people went to see it, although it did it did get uh, a decent reception from uh, from critics. Again, uh, one of Hill's lesser-known films, but one one that I like a lot and one that I think is one of uh, one of the better ones in his catalog. Now the next one, this one this one's a goodie. Slapshot, 1977, a classic sports comedy, starring Paul Newman, the last of the uh, the three films he and George Roy Hill made together. Paul Newman plays Reg Dunlop, who is a player coach for a minor league hockey team in a fictional working-class blue-collar town. And after finding out that uh, the team is in danger of uh, folding and going bust, he convinces he convinces his team to adopt a rougher style of play, a more violent style of play. And it follows the team, it follows these working-class people in this mill town. They put a bit of a winning streak together. Paul Newman, of course, his character Reg Dunlop is trying to keep the streak alive. He's trying constructing this this elaborate charade, and con- and trying to convince his players that the, the team is not in fact going to fold, that that they may end up getting sold, and if they, and if they keep performing well, if they keep this winning streak alive, and actually manage to make something of their of what's the, really their final season as a as a hockey team, that they may attract a buyer. And meanwhile, he's 
making these desperate and sort of pathetic attempts to win his wife back. And, um, and while all this is happening, their town, their hometown, fictional town in Pennsylvania called Charlestown, uh, the local mill is about to lay off 10,000 workers. And like many films that came out of the 1970s in America, it is a very sort of raw, gritty, crude, and unvarnished portrayal of just sort of of blue-collar life. I mean, these guys are hockey players. They're in the minor leagues, but they're not they're not celebrities by any means. They're 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 pretty much just as blue-collar as as the guys getting laid off from the mill. I suppose the players and perhaps Paul Newman most importantly, uh, they need they need something to they need something to believe in. They need something to bang their ho- to bank their hopes on. And so you see Paul Newman constructing this elaborate charade that the team is, is going to get sold and as opposed to just go bust entirely. And uh, I suppose no one on the team believes it more than he does. And with that said, as uh, sort of maudlin and sad as all that sounds, it is a fucking hilarious film. Are you cheap son of a bitch? Are you crazy? Those guys are retards. I got a good deal on those boys. The scout said they showed a lot of promise. They brought their fucking toys with them. I'd rather have them playing with their toys and playing with themselves. They're too dumb to play with themselves. Let's get into the particulars a little bit. So it was written by a woman named Nancy Dowd, based on her brother's experiences playing in the minor leagues. Her brother's name was Ned is Ned Dowd, who uh, played on a minor league hockey team called the Johnstown Jets, uh, on which a lot of these the team and Slapshot's exploits are based. You see the guys in the locker room. They're working class guys. They're hockey players. And there's just this, all this sort of brutal, crude, lowbrow humor. And frankly, I don't know if you can make a comedy this dirty and this crass today, in today's day and age, but I think it's it's a hilarious comedy. Uh, let's get into the cast. So, like we said before, written by Nancy Dowd, based on her brother's experience as a minor league hockey player. Dee Dee Allen comes back to edit this, so uh, she worked on this one as well. And uh, the cast, Paul Newman, of course, in the lead, Strother Martin... Another fantastic performance. He he plays the sort of nickel and diming sort of sort of Weasley GM of the team. Michael Ankeen is basically the closest thing the team has to a star player. He's a very skillful player, and he is resisting Paul Newman's attempts to get the team to adopt the more goonish style of play. He just wants to play classic hockey. Lindsay Krause plays the wife to Michael Ankeen's character. Lindsay Krause, who I I, I love a lot. She was an Oscar-nominated actress. She got nominated. For Best Supporting Actress for Places in the Heart in 1984. Her father was uh, a playwright named uh, Russell Krauss, who worked on The Sound of Music, among many other things. Lindsay Krauss was a New Yorker. She was in uh, Prince of the City. She was in The Verdict with Paul Newman in 1982. She was also in uh, House of Games, David Mamet's first film, and she and David Mamet were actually husband and wife for a time. Uh, and she's in this, and she she's really great, as, as always. Jerry Hauser's in this as well. M. Emmett Walsh, another fantastic character actor. Jennifer Warren plays Paul Newman's uh, estranged wife. Uh, Swoozie Kurtz, another great actress. She shows up in this. She's going to come up again later. She plays one of the hockey wives. and she, she's It's a small part, but she's really great in it. Catherine Walker has another great scene. Uh, another small part, but a really great, uh, another memorable appearance. She plays the team's owner. Uh, several real-life hockey players show up in this. Most importantly... Jeff and Steve Carlson and Dave Hansen show up as the three Hansen brothers. Now, if you haven't seen Slapshot, you've you've probably seen some rendition of the Hansen brothers somewhere with their long hair and their Coke bottle glasses, and they look they basically look like triplets. And so Ned Dowd, the screenwriter Nancy Nancy Dowd's brother, played on the Johnstown Jets. Jeff, Steve, and their third brother Jack Carlson all played with Ned Dowd Ned Dowd on the Johnstown Jets in the North American Hockey League in the NAHL. 
the three Carlson brothers were actually going to play the three Hanson brothers together, but what happened was uh, Jack Carlson ended up getting called up to the Edmonton Oilers for the WHA playoffs. The Oilers weren't in the NHL at the time. So he got called up, and uh, Dave Hanson, who had already been cast in another role, he stepped in to play the third Hanson brothers, and they are, they are hilarious. <laughs> Just these basically three grown three grown children sort of wreaking havoc and playing with their toy cars and it's it's just it's all just sort of infantile and crass and uh, but it but it's it's hilarious and I, I I have no shame about it. Hey gang, let's play it smart out there tonight. I want to see a lot of work from you guys. Put your heads on the ice out there. Yeah, we got this. We all know how to play hockey. Just play it smart. That's right. Be not Derek Stickle. Fuck him, Christ, Pop. need this win, you know. We got a lot of losses to Yeah, play. we got a lot of losses. Come on, let's start making a lot of the bottom. That's what we're here for, guys, to win. Play heads up out there. I mean, let's be smart. Man for man, we're better than any fucking club in the league. And let's just put our minds to it. We're number one. We're number one. We're number one. Come on, Come on, Braden, our line starts. Come on, come on, come on. A lot of the brawl, the bench-clearing brawls and incidents you see in the film were actually based on real-life incidents that happened uh, with the Johnstown Jets hockey team. And Nancy Dowd actually uh, convinced her brother, Ned, to uh, bring a tape recorder into the Johnstown Jets locker room so that she could capture the authentic uh, dialogue and banter of the locker room. So yeah, and that's what you see in the film. It's funny, George Roy Hill was actually hell-bent uh, from what I've read. There's a great article on Slapshot, actually a great retrospective in, in Rolling Stone that you can find online. It's a, it's a really good feature, uh, and I highly recommend reading it if you have the, if you have the time. Uh, so George Roy Hill was naturally, and rightfully so, concerned with casting people who knew how to skate. Paul Newman played hockey as a youth, so he knew how to skate, although he had a double, I believe. When Slapshot was made, he was, uh, I believe, 52 years old. He was in his early 50s at the time, so he was up there, although he was in, in pretty good shape. Nonetheless, Michael Onkeen, who is the team's star hockey player, uh, he was a Canadian actor, and he uh, he could play. He got a, a hockey scholarship to the University of New Hampshire, which was a Division One program. So he uh, he knew his business on the ice. Those of you uh, who love the uh, David Lynch series Twin Peaks actually know Michael Onkin pretty well. He played the sheriff, which I think is his best known role to date. And um, the importance of uh, of being comfortable on ice was actually uh, a bit problematic in the casting. Apparently. I read the online, that I don't know if this is true, but again, print the legend. Al Pacino apparently was up for the role of Reg Dunlop, played by Paul Newman, which, <laughs> which would have been hilarious, but for all the wrong reasons. Apparently, he didn't end up getting cast because Hill was concerned about you know how convincing he would look on the ice and whether he was comfortable on, in skates. Uh, and apparently, a variety of people, including Nick Nolte, John Travolta, Harrison Ford... Kurt Russell and Richard Gere, all of those guys apparently auditioned for roles in the film, uh, but none of them could skate well enough. And uh, that's a bit of a relief because, uh, with the exception of Nick Nolte, I'm not a fan of any of those actors, to be honest. So also, uh, another thing about this, uh, Andrew Duncan, uh, he plays the, pay the, the play-by-play announcer and the, uh, and the local radio host. And uh, he's in the opening scene. It's an especially great opening scene with uh, him and Yvon Barrette, who is a Quebecois actor who plays uh, the team goalie. And it's another great, just sort of long, single-shot take of the two of them having an interview, and that's how the film opens. Sports talk. Hi, Jim Carr again. 
Uh, Dennis, uh, I know that some in our audience don't know the finer points of hockey. Uh, could you tell them, for example, uh, what is icing? Well, um, icing happens when uh, the puck comes down, bang, you know, before the other guys, mm -hmm. nobody there, you know. Mm -hmm. My arm go comes out, then uh, the game stops and start up. I see. Uh, what is high sticking? High sticking happen when uh, the guy take the stick, you know, and he go like that. You know, you don't do that. You don't do that. Oh, no, never, never. Why not? Against the rules. You know, you're stupid when you do that. Just some English pig with no uh, brain Dennis, at all, uh, you know. What is uh, slashing? And it's really funny. Also, Melinda Dillon, another Oscar-nominated actress, she shows up briefly in this. And there's a, a yet another great bedroom scene, another long shot, one-take scene. She and Paul Newman have uh, have sex, and uh, they the scene is basically the two of them in the bedroom po post coitus, where Melinda Dillon is uh, is basically telling him the story of um, uh, her first sexual experience with a woman. <laughs> it's a it's a really good scene. Also, speaking of Paul Newman yet again, uh, he has said several times and said it later later on in his life that uh, Slapshot was the most fun he ever had uh, on a movie set. And if you watch the movie, I mean that that does not come as a surprise. Uh, that looked like a pretty good time, I gotta say. Uh, the film was mostly shot in Pennsylvania and New York State, and uh, unfortunately got a lukewarm reception. I mean, the crudeness and, and the foul language and all that, the locker room talk, if you will, uh, that did not sit well with reviewers. And keep in mind, there weren't many, uh, there weren't many films that that were so daring in terms of language and uh, and vulgarities at the time. I mean, the the last detail had come out in 1973, and that at the time was statistically, I think, the most vulgar movie to ever come, to have ever come out in Hollywood, and even that, by today's standards, was actually pretty tame. Uh, so anyway, all this to say, the uh, the foul language in the film didn't really sit well with uh, with the critics. The reviews were actually pretty lukewarm. Again, much like The Great Waldo Pepper, it fared decently well at the box office. It turned a decent profit. It was a moderate success, but not a sensation, and like I said, the critics weren't particularly kind to it. That said, in the 40-some years that have ensued, Slapshot has is is uh, is adored by by a great many film nerds, and uh, it is often cited as one of the greatest sports films of all time. And I uh, I agree wholeheartedly. I I think it's a classic, one of the best sports films I've ever seen, certainly. And it's hilarious. It's it really is a great time. And like I said, it's a really great raw and honest portrayal of just of just blue collar life. Okay, the next one. George Roy Hill closed out the nineteen seventies with a film called A Little Romance. Now, this came out in 1979. It is based on a novel titled E equals MC squared Mon Amour, written by Patrick Covin, which was the pen name of uh, a French author named Claude Klotz. This film follows a romance between two young teenagers in Paris, played by Thelonious Bernard, who is a, a French actor, and a young Diane Lane. She was 13 years old when this movie was made. This was her screen debut. And it follows the uh, the romance the two of them develop and the vow they make to sort of... Uh, the attempt they make to immortalize their romance by fleeing to Venice and kissing under the Bridge of Sighs. I don't know, I think about this film and uh, it really isn't a bad film at all and a lot like the world of Henry Orient. I don't know, I guess you could... In a way, you could sort of regard it as uh, maybe not a sequel of sorts, but it's definitely in the same realm, in the same in the same tone... And it definitely has the same innocence and charm as the world of Henry Orient. It's very sweet. If you're looking, if you're looking for something that is that is entirely true to life, if you're if you know you got to check your purism at the door with this one in order to enjoy it. And again, much like the world of Henry Orient, it's 
it's really hard not to appreciate the sort of um, the innocence and the purity in, in the intentions of, of, of the two main characters and this sort of blossoming young love between the two of them, as childish and, uh, and immature as it may be. I gotta say, I mean, it's uh, Diane Lane, like I said, her screen debut, a really fantastic performance from her. It's really impressive. I mean, she and Thelonious Bernard are really excellent in this. Two really good performances by two very young actors. Diane Lane, interestingly enough, uh, her parents were performers. Her mother, Colleen Lee Farmington, was a nightclub singer, and uh, she also posed for Playboy in uh, in the late 50s. And her father was Burt Lane, who is an actor, and uh, if you listen to our first episode, the John Cassavetes episode, Burt Lane comes up, he and John Lane, he and John Cassavetes, rather, had uh, an acting workshop together in New York in, uh, in the, the mid-50s, well before Diane Lane was born. So Diane Lane was born in, uh, to a family of performers, and she was actually uh, on stage from the age of six, with the uh, La Mama Theater Company, which is a legend, is a legendary uh, off off Broadway company in New York City, and uh, by the time by the time she got cast in Little Romance, she uh, she had actually shared the stage with uh, with Meryl Streep, and um, yeah, she is uh, she is fantastic in this. She and Thelonious Bernard play two precocious teenagers, and Diane Lane is the more uh, the more sort of uh, erudite, the more uh, well read of the two, if you will, the more book smart, and Thelonious Bernard. Uh, he is the more street smart of the two. He comes. He's uh, he uh, lives with his father, who is uh, a cab driver, who uh, also has a terrible gambling habit and is a, really a very good provider. And um, Thelonious Bernard's character is sort of left to fend for himself and uh, you know make his own way in the world. And uh, so the two of them really are a lovely duo. And uh, Laurence Olivier is in this as well. He got top billing, even though he is not the lead actor. And he is very good in this as well. Not my favorite performance of his, but. Uh, he is very sweet, and it's his character that sort of plants the seed for Diane Lane and Thelonious Bernard to sort of uh, steal themselves away and go to Venice and uh, sort of consummate their romance with a kiss under the Bridge of Sighs. Ah, there is an old Venetian legend which says that uh, if two lovers kiss in a gondola under the Bridge of Sighs at sunset, when the bells of the company they toll, they will love each other forever. And uh, Sally Kellerman shows up in this as well. She is the mother to Diane Lane's character. Sa- Sally Kellerman, fantastic actress who was in uh, MASH, the Robert Altman film, got nominated for Best Supporting Actress at the Oscars for it. She was also in Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. Arthur Hill shows up in this as well. We mentioned him. He had a work with George Roy Hill on Broadway in the late 50s. And uh, he shows up in this as the stepfather to Diane Lane's character. He was a Canadian actor as well. David Dukes is really great in this. He plays uh, this douchey sort of Hollywood director who's working on uh, uh, a film in Paris with uh, Sally Kellerman. Broderick Crawford, Oscar-winning actor from uh, the old Hollywood days, shows up as himself. He won an Oscar in 1949 for All the King's Men, and it's a really funny and sort of cute appearance he has in here. Andrew Duncan shows up again in a small part. And Ashby Semple plays the sort of dopey and dim-witted friend of uh, Diane Lane's character. And this is the only film uh, Ashby Semple ever did, but uh, she's, she's actually really good in this. The film was shot on location in Paris and uh, in the north of Italy. And uh, written by uh, George Roy Hill, contributed to the screenplay, and uh, Alan Burns, who uh, co-created the Mary Tyler Moore Show with James L. Brooks. Uh, George Delarue did the music for this and uh, won at the Oscars for Best Original Score, and it really is a lovely score indeed. Alan Burns 
was nominated for uh, for best screenplay at the Oscars as well. So uh, a well received film, and like I said, it's uh, a lot, you're a lot like the world of Henry Orient. I still love the world of Henry Orient. I prefer it to to a little uh, a little romance, but um, I suppose I suppose it plucks at your heartstrings and uh, it sort of harken it'll harken back to a lot of people's uh, sort of idealized visions of uh, of love and romance that you have in your youth, you know before you've actually begun living in the world and uh, learned a lot of harsh lessons in, in life. <laughs> I guess that's what it comes down to, really. It's just really an homage to young love and the purity of it, however inaccurate it may be. The purity in those young sort of preconceived notions of love before life and sort of the harsh realities thereof get in the way of it. Uh, but in any case, so that wraps up uh, the 1970s for George Warhill's work. Yeah, like I said, the 70s, I think, was, uh, was the best decade for the George Roy Hill business. <laughs> it's just a, a really good string of films that were both successful and uh, and good pieces of art. And some really good some really good sleeper hits in, in this some some uh, some secret gems, I think. Now on to the next film. This one another interesting one in the catalogue and one that I like a lot. So the next one is The World According to Garp. This came out in nineteen eighty two, adapted from John Irving's nineteen seventy eight novel. But he did not write the screenplay. The screenplay was written by a guy named Steve Tesich, who won an Oscar for uh, his work on the script for Breaking Away in 1979. Now, The World According to Garp, starring Robin Williams, Mary Beth Hurt, Glenn Close, the great Glenn Close, who I love. This was her film debut. John Lithgow, another actor I have a huge soft spot for. Swoozy Kurtz comes back. Um, Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin, who... Uh, were husband and wife in real life for many, many years and play husband and wife briefly in this. Amanda Plummer, who was in Pulp Fiction and The Fisher King, and uh, George Roy Hill himself has a cameo as a pilot in this one. So the film follows the life of T.S. Garp, who's played by Robin Williams. Glenn Close plays his mother. His mother is a nurse by trade. She ends up becoming a, uh, a feminist icon and a, a, a feminist leader. And um, T.S. Garp is conceived when his mother, Glenn Close's character, uh, she's tending to wounded veterans in uh, in the Second World War. She is uh, she is caring for a fatally wounded soldier who is brain damaged, and she essentially takes advantage of him one night and rapes him so that so that she can have a child without a husband, without a partner. And T. S. Garp is raised without a father, and it follows T. S. Garp as he as he grows up and becomes uh, and becomes a writer and marries Mary Beth Hurst's character and settles down and has a family while at the same time. Glenn Close's character, T.S. Garp's mother, becomes a feminist icon. She becomes a successful writer in her own right. In fact, much more successful than T.S. Garp. And she ends up opening a she ends up opening a shelter for traumatized and abused women. And it also follows them as they sort of brave the uh, the gender politics, the sexual politics of their era. And it's interesting because I. Um, in preparing for this for this episode, I looked up, I watched uh, an interview that John Irving had done uh, for the 40-year anniversary of, uh, of the novel, The World According to Garp. And uh, he described the book as being about, um, among other things, about sexual intolerance. You have Glenn Close's character, Jenny Fields, who is who becomes a feminist icon, a feminist leader. And she's ultimately, uh, ultimately undone by a, uh, a misogynist. And on the other side of that, you have her son, T.S. Garp, played by Robin Williams, who is not politically active, but who is ultimately undone by a radical feminist. And of course, 
while those those two arcs play out, I mean, of course, you follow you basically follow this picaresque story of uh, T.S. Garp coming of age, Robin Williams' character becoming a writer and settling down, marrying Mary Beth Hurt's character, having a family, and uh, also chronicling the um, the struggles in his marriage. I mean, he and he and Mary Beth Hurt's character are both unfaithful. And there's another great scene of them in the bedroom together. Again, it's an emerging pattern. I mean, like I've said before, long one-shot takes have, have a certain intimacy about them, I believe. And uh, I guess it fits. Because uh, the bedroom is where pretty intimate things take place. So it makes sense that uh, that there'd be a, a bit of a pattern of these, these bedroom scenes shot in single takes. But uh, like I said, there's a great scene between Robin Williams and Mary Beth Hurt in the bedroom where Robin Williams has just... Uh, has just cheated on uh, on his wife with the family babysitter. And Mary Beth Hurt's character confronts him with this. And all you see the wheels in her head turning because she is being pursued by a student of hers. And you watch her entertain the notion of uh, of entering into this, this affair, this forbidden romance with this young student of hers immediately after her husband is, has been unfaithful to her. And another interesting thing about this when because I watched this film and as much as I liked it when I was done, I had, uh, I admit, I, I had a bit of a hard time trying to figure out what the whole thing was about. And it's been interesting, It was, the, and that's what made it especially interesting hearing John Irving talk about the novel at least 40 years after, the, after his writing it. And an interesting observation he made was that John Lithgow, his character, he plays a trans woman in the film named Roberta Muldoon. And we're introduced to Roberta Muldoon in the film at... Glenn Close's Jenny Fields, uh, her character's shelter for battered women, for traumatized women. That's where we're introduced to John Lithgow's character, Roberta. And Roberta had been envisioned by John Irving as being the sort of middle ground, the bridge between T.S. Garp's world and his mother's sort of uh, radical, not radical feminist, but his mother's, his mother's feminist world. And Roberta Muldoon, this trans woman played by John Lithgow, in the novel, at least, was intended to be the bridge between the two, a, so a voice of reason of sorts, because Roberta loves Jenny Fields and T.S. Garp equally. She's equally devoted to both of them. And he was a little disappointed, he said in this interview that I watched. Uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, you can find it. It's about 40-some minutes long. And he said that as much as he liked John Lithgow as an actor, and he is a fantastic actor, he, um, he said he was a little disappointed, and I guess this is more... In Steve Tesich's screenplay, he was disappointed that Roberta Muldoon was a little too heavy on the comic relief, and that she wasn't portrayed as this sort of, um, with as much importance as John Irving had given her in the book. It's all right. It's Jesus Christ. No sense making things any worse than they are. This whole house is full of... I know, I know. Everyone here has something missing, or some wound that won't heal, and your mother tries to nurse them back to health. She's a wonderful person. Are you visiting somebody here? No, why? Well, you just seem like the only normal person around the place. Oh, I don't know. Pardon me. I hate to use a corny line like this, but haven't I seen you before? You like football? Oh, yeah, I used to watch you quite a bit. Well, you might have seen me. I was a tight end with the Philadelphia Eagles. Number 90, Robert Muldoon. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had a great pair of hands. Nonetheless, a really fantastic performance by John Lithgow. I have, an espe I have a special fondness for him. I have a, a soft spot for him because I'm a 90s baby and I grew up watching 
Third Rock from the Sun as a kid. So John Lithgow can do no wrong in my eyes. Uh, but uh, great performance from him. Glenn Close, this was her film debut. She was 35 when the film came out. And uh, funny enough, she, um, she plays Robin Williams' mother in the film, although they are only four years apart in age. And she and she's Mary Beth Hurt's mother-in-law in the film, and the two of them are only one year apart in age. I think Mary Beth Hurt is actually older than her. And uh, like I said, Glenn Close's film debut, she had been working in the theater up until then. She had been on Broadway in a play called Barnum, which is where uh, George Roy Hill was, uh, was introduced to her. That's what, and that's what got her involved in the film. And it's a fantastic performance from her. I mean, Glenn Close, another actress... She's been nominated for eight Oscars. She was nominated for an Oscar for this as well for Best Supporting Actress. She has not yet won. I don't know what the fuck is up with that. There's, there's something wrong with that. But she is she is so good in this. And uh, the film takes place in New England primarily. And she has that classic sort of Yankee accent a la Betty Davis or Catherine Hepburn. Glenn Close and Catherine Hepburn, coincidentally enough, were, were both from Connecticut. So Glenn Close was a, a Yankee herself, if you will. Anyway... The war was on. I was a nurse. One day they brought in a tail gunner who had been wounded by anti-aircraft in a raid over Germany. A splinter of steel had lodged in his brain and all he could say was his name, Garb. For medical reasons I couldn't quite understand, he also had a constant erection. Well, he deteriorated steadily. Till one day all he could say was part of his name, Arp. It was then that I knew that he wouldn't last much longer. His erections continued, however, quite unabated. I see. I'll just Not be going. yet. No. no, not yet. You'd better rest. Anyway, where was I? He kept having erections. Thank you. He was dying. I wanted a child. Seemed like a good way to have one without the bother of a husband hanging around who had legal rights to my body. So one night when I was on duty and the wounded and maimed were all asleep, I went to him. He was asleep, but his erection was there as always. I removed my undergarments and climbed on top of him. He woke up then, said the only word other than his name that I ever heard him utter. He said, good. Didn't take very long and that once was all that was needed. But a fantastic performance from her. And uh, Jenny Fields is an especially interesting character because, like I said, she is this feminist leader. She has chosen to have a son without a partner. She's chosen to raise him without without a father. And she is convinced that T.S. Garp does not need a father. And she, she tells him that very plainly when he's a child, in fact. And it's interesting just watching the, the dynamic between her and her son. I mean, she is, she is, there's a lot to like about Jenny Fields. Again, this is the the importance of nuance. It's not it's not one note, and then because you see, there are times when whatever you think of her decision to raise her son without a father deliberately. I mean, there are times when yeah, she's very very curt with Garp. She's not particularly warm with him all the time. She's very just sort of blunt and firm with him at times. And yet, there's still a lot to like about Jenny Fields as a character. I mean, she's she essentially devotes her life to tending to other people. She's a nurse by trade. She opens the shelter for traumatized women. She's she's strong-willed. She's capable. But I suppose I suppose it's it's fair to wonder why exactly it is she chose to have um, why she chose to go the route that she did and raise her son without a father. And it's interesting because John Irving himself actually did not know his biological father, and in, in fact, his mother refused to tell him about his biological father. Uh, although he did grow up with a stepfather, I believe. So he didn't, he didn't grow up with, without a father figure in his life entirely. 
And to bring it back to the film, John Irving and George Roy Hill actually talked about the adaptation. George Roy Hill wanted John Irving to adapt the novel for the screen, and John Irving turned him down. Although he did spend some time on set, and he does show up briefly as uh, he cameos as the referee in a wrestling match. And Irving himself said that he didn't totally dislike the film, but he also didn't feel like he had a pass to shit on it because he had turned down the chance to work on it and do it his way. And he tur- he backed out on the project because, yet again, George Roy Hill, very strong-willed, very stubborn, very set in his ways. He and Irving had different visions of what the, f- what the film should be. And it's, it was because of this clash that Irving sort of uh, sort of backed out. Although I can appreciate the film just for the nuance of it, and especially the nuance in, in, in looking at uh, Glenn Close's character. And it's interesting because T.S. Garp is raised without a father, and yet you see him, when he starts his own family, he is, first and foremost, a loving and devoted father. That much is, is obvious, it's plain, plain to see. But a very interesting film... And uh, yet another one that wasn't a huge, not a huge commercial success, although Glenn Close and John Lithgow were both nominated for Oscars for Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress. Uh, Jessica Lange ended up winning Best Supporting Actress for Tootsie in 1982. Jessica Lange is great, but Tootsie doesn't really hold up very well, unfortunately. And uh, Louis Gossett Jr. ended up winning Best Supporting Actor for uh, An Officer and a Gentleman. So that's that for The World According to Garp. Now, unfortunately... The work George Roy Hill put out in the 1980s wasn't, wasn't quite as good or plentiful as the work that uh, he put out in the 70s. And uh, in 1984, he made his next film called The Little Drummer Girl. This is a spy film with Diane Keaton, Yorgo Voyedzi, who was a Greek actor, one of my people, Klaus Kinski, who was uh, a notorious whack job, and uh, Sammy Frey. Now, this is based on a novel by John le Carré, who is... Uh, who was actually in British intelligence. He was in MI6 and then became a very successful novelist, wrote uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, a very, very a great many espionage novels, many of which were adapted for the screen. And uh, it tells the story of Diane Keaton. Who play, Diane Keaton plays a, an actress who is recruited by the Mossad, so the Israeli intelligence uh, service, to help them flush out a, uh, a bomber from the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And uh, to be honest, there really isn't much to say about this one. I mean, the novel itself is over 500 pages long. It's another sprawling piece of work, a very big undertaking that was adapted by a screenwriter named Loring Mandel. Again, just adapting a piece of work that's that big for the screen, even if you're trying to distill it down to two hours, I mean, it's a very tall order. Again, even for even for a movie with a, with a runtime of two plus hours, the, f- the film really doesn't call, uh, come together. And uh, I gotta be honest... Uh, don't bother watching this one. It's not worth the time. It's definitely, definitely the most forgettable film of the George Roy Hill catalog. That much I can say with certainty. So, after being pretty prolific for the majority of his career, Hill actually took a while to make his next film, which would be his last. He, uh, The Little Drummer Girl came out in 1984. Uh, his next film and his last came out in 1988. This was called Funny Farm. And it's an adaptation of a 1985 novel by Jay Cronley. And uh, it was produced by Pan Arts, George Roy Hill's production company, and Warner Brothers. And it stars Chevy Chase and Madeline Smith. Chevy Chase is a sports writer who is leaving his job in New York City to move up to Vermont, where he's bought a house with his wife, a house in the country. They're going to move up to Vermont. He is going to work on his, his great novel. 
And of course they move to the town and all kinds of complications and shenanigans ensue and they run into a variety of different characters in the small town that they're in and all the town's people are crazy and they all have their own idiosyncrasies. And you know, it's uh, hilarity is at least supposed to ensue. Now, uh, the script for this thing was written by a guy named Jeffrey Bohm who co-wrote Straight Time, the Dustin Hoffman film, wrote The Lost Boys, Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Uh, the film was shot primarily in Vermont. Elmer Bernstein comes back to do the music on this one. And um, it's interesting, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Bohm talks about the adaptation, and yet again, he and, uh, he and George Roy Hill had conflicting visions. Jeffrey Bohm had intended the film, or at least he saw it as, as a film that would have a lot of, again, a lot like Slapshot, sort of crude and lowbrow humor, and I guess he expected the humor to be much more in your face and just sort of, you know... But according to him, I mean, uh, with George Roy Hill's involvement, Hill decided to sort of uh, to sort of clean up his adaptation and make a more make a more classier production out of it. But unfortunately, he made it too clean. I mean, it's not a bad film altogether. It's 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 kind of offbeat and quirky. But unfortunately, it again like period of adjustment, his first film, it just really isn't very funny. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there are a couple of there are a couple of good moments. And the supporting cast is actually really good. Kevin O'Morrison plays the uh, the bumbling sheriff. Alice Drummond is in this. The great uh, New York character actor Mike Starr shows up. He plays one of the movers. Kevin Conway comes back. He shows up in a really small role as uh, as the drunken town mailman. And it's it's a brief but but great performance. He's really good in this. Oh, may I present Mr. and Mrs. Culbertson? Bud and Betsy. They're thinking of buying the house. Oh, is that so? Well, you won't regret it. But uh, I'm really going to be sorry to see the farmers go. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I better be going. Uh, doing some ice fishing tonight. Pulling some nice-sized pike out of the lake, I hear. Uh, good day to you folks. Ice fishing? I thought it was a nice touch. <laughs> but it'll cost you. <laughs> Brad Sullivan, who is in Slapshot, he shows up in this as well as one of the townspeople. And Jack Gilpin shows up in a small role as well. Jack Gilpin is uh, an Episcopal priest. And most importantly, he's the father of Betty Gilpin, who was on uh, the Netflix series Glow which uh, has become one of my favorites, and Betty Gilpin is a monster talent. But yeah, a lot of... By this time, in 1988, Chevy Chase was a huge star. I mean, the uh, the vacation films... A couple of the vacation films had come out. He had been in Caddyshack. He had had a string of box office hits, and people were accustomed to seeing a certain type of Chevy Chase film, if you will. So a lot of the uh, the Chevy Chase purists, if you will, were disappointed with Funny Farm. And I think rightfully so, not because... Not because they were right to expect more of the same, but because it really is just a dud of an adaptation. It's too clean. It's very, it's, it's subdued to a fault. And it's not even just like this sort of subtle and offbeat humor. It just really isn't. There really aren't very many laughs to be had in this, unfortunately. And uh, it's unfortunate that, uh, that this, was, this was George Roy Hill's last film. I mean, after, after the great work he did in the 70s, I mean, this, this really was a... Between this and The Little Drummer Girl, it really was a... A sad way to go out, unfortunately. And so the Chevy purists were disappointed. The film opened to mixed reviews and it even got buried at the box office because it came out in the summer of 1988 
and uh, it was it was competing with Coming to America, Big, the Tom Hanks film, uh, Die Hard, and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and all of those films are much better than Funny Farm, and rightfully earned more than it did, but uh, in any case. So like I said, unfortunately, that proved to be the last film of uh, George Roy Hill's career as a film director, and after this, he, uh, quit the sh- he quit show business entirely and went back to his alma mater. He went back to Yale to teach drama. And uh, he passed away on December 27th, 2002, at the age of 81, from complications from Parkinson's disease. And uh, he and his wife, Louisa Horton, had been divorced for close to 30 years by that point, uh, but they had remained friends, apparently. And uh, he left behind four children, a dozen grandkids. And uh, if I may in a sort of quick summation, just trying to sort of cobble together the, uh, the kind of guy he was, just based on reports and interviews of people who worked with him. I mean, not a, again, there isn't very much that came from the horse's mouth and uh, when I was conducting my research, like I said, he wasn't very accessible. I don't know, from what I've been able to piece together, he does not strike me as someone who is very pleasant to work with or be around. Although uh, Robert Redford and Paul Newman were pretty fond of him, and Robert Redford actually, in an interview, he... Uh, he called George Roy Hill perverse. He meant it in a flattering way. I don't think he was referring to the affair he had with Tibby Walker during the making of uh, The World of Henry Orient. But again, someone who was very strong-willed, very set in his ways, to a fault, I think, to a certain degree. And again, yeah, that affair with Tibby Walker really doesn't sit well. I mean, they were over 25 years apart in age. He was married with children. She was, she was in high school, for fuck's sake. And, um, and not just that, he also had a reputation, apparently... Uh, and I've heard this from both Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Robert Redford, in particular, was quoted as calling Hill cosmically cheap, which is another one of my big pet peeves. I fucking hate people who are stingy. Especially people like Hill, who came from a well-to-do family and really weren't hurting for money. There was no need to be stingy. But uh, apparently he was uh, he was a penny-pincher old Georgie. So yeah, just sort of... Uh, not a man with uh, many desirable qualities, from what I've been able to understand. Obviously, I didn't know him personally. And again, a body of work that uh, was a little all over the place, a little inconsistent, but uh, one that nonetheless has a handful of diamonds diamonds in the rough, if you will. And to be fair, there isn't a director out there who hasn't made at least a couple duds in their careers. Let's face it, I mean, it's pretty much true of every, every director, really. I mean, some are more consistent than others, sure, but it is, it's a rarity, I think, that you find that you find a director with more than a handful of gems in their body of work, whether they were prolific or not. And again, one thing that I can respect about Hill's work is the is the nostalgic quality about them. A lot of period pieces, a lot of sort of looking back on the past. Again, the the sort of sweetness and innocence of uh, the world of Henry Orient and the little romance. I mean, I uh, I can greatly appreciate those. And and again, it's totally understandable for a guy who was a history buff, someone who lived in the past in. In more than a few ways, it makes total sense that he would that he would sort of devote much of his work to these period pieces that sort of look back on on bygone eras. And so, with that said, I've I've babbled long enough. That about does it for uh, the old Georgie. I know I've been fairly critical of his work today, but like I said, I do encourage you to give a lot of his films a look. And so, before I leave you, I just want to remind you that um, you can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Uh, you can find the link for it on uh, the podcast Instagram. We are on the Instagram at Close Set Podcast. Uh, and you can also look them up on any of those platforms. Uh, just look up Closed Set 
with T Alexis, and uh, you should find it. And uh, please subscribe, follow us on the Instagram, that's where I'll be posting updates to all the episodes. And uh, you can also reach out to us via email, like I said at the top of the show. It is closedsetpod at gmail.com. If you have any constructive criticism, that is always welcome. Feedback, comments, and uh, I would like to say to all three of you listening, uh, thank you for bearing with me. I tried very hard to avoid the sophomore jinx, if you will. Uh, not that my first episode was a smashing success, but you understand uh, you understand the point. And uh, I hope that you continue to bear with me while I uh, try to sort of work out uh, the kinks and my deficiencies as a, as a broadcaster. And uh, until next time, take care of yourselves. I have now spent exactly a year and three months on this film. And at this point, I don't know yet how it's going to be received. I think it's a good film. I think the guys are great in it. And I think the relationships work. Uh, it was a hell of a lot of hard work doing it, and actually even more fun. And if the audiences don't take it, I, uh, uh, I think I'll go out of my fucking mind.